You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop. <laughs> On vacation in Beverly Hills. I just got off the phone with an Inspector Todd in Detroit. He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder, you needn't bother coming back. I don't want to take it anymore. A man who claims to be on vacation, you look a lot like you're on a stakeout. Stakeout? No, no. I'm picnicking. This is like a picnic area. I have to ask you some questions about Michael Tandino. I've never been to a cell that had a phone in it. Can I stay for a while? Because I ordered some pizza. We have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place, then jumped out the window. May I help you? Yeah. I'm looking for Victor Maitland. I have nothing to say to you. How you doing? You guys don't know nothing about nothing, do you? You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks because my drink club sold out. Throw up. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. Stays nice in my apartment. I just bet you are the pride of your department in Detroit. It seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest idea who you're dealing with. I know what y'all think I am, killing some kind of fool. Hurry up, quicker! Crawl back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed. Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Cummins. Hey, thanks for having me back, Mike. Also back with us on the show is Mr. Elric Kane. I'm just glad to be here for a comedy episode. We continue 80s month with a movie that is very dear to my heart, Beverly Hills Cop. Released in 1984, the film was directed by Martin Brest and introduced Eddie Murphy to a lot of people who may not have known him otherwise. Murphy stars as Detroit detective Axel Foley. When his childhood friend Mikey is killed, Foley goes out to Beverly Hills to investigate the murder. He's an inner city fish in a very posh pond. Now, has anyone within the sound of my voice not seen Beverly Hills Cop? If so, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film. We're going to spoil this movie, as well as Beverly Hills Cop 2, maybe 3, maybe Cobra while we're at it. And I might just spoil a few more movies just for spite. Now, Chris, when was the first time you saw Beverly Hills Cop, and what did you think? First time I saw it was probably had to be uh, when it initially came to video. Uh, I remember it being a big deal that my parents brought this movie home. Uh, my, I, I have an older sister and an older brother. Uh, we tended to not get to see, you know, more adult comedies like R-rated stuff. Uh, but this was a movie that the whole family, you know, kind of sat down and, and watched because we knew, we knew Eddie Murphy from, uh, from Saturday Night Live, obviously. And, uh, you know, 
so when we watched it, I, I just thought it was fantastic. Uh, obviously I was familiar with the soundtrack by that point because I guess it was 1986. It came out on video or 85. But anyway, uh, like I, I was already familiar with the songs and everything, but, and, and, and Eddie Murphy fan, but I wasn't prepared for like how great the, the merging of comedy and action would be. And I think that's the first time I can remember like a movie that that did that um that that i'd seen at that point in my life i was i was 10 or 11 uh so yeah uh and it just blew me away i i loved it and it remains one of my favorite all-time films i think it is it is pretty much a perfect film how about you alec yeah it's probably about nine or ten as well and it was definitely when it came to video we didn't have snl uh growing up in new zealand but i had older brothers who had uh raw and delirious and i remember having seen them a, a number of times before i saw this film otherwise i'd never seen him uh as an actor uh when i saw this film and uh, I, I i like you say i loved the film and i, and I loved how uh, kind of seamless the friendship that was the thing that i really came right away with was like the camaraderie between these characters as a, as the story goes on and i remember kind of falling in love with that and the one thing, like just even watching it last night, then thinking back to being a kid, is I remember never thinking about race in it. Never, never even crossed my mind. It was just about a guy from Detroit who came to Beverly Hills. It wasn't about a black guy from Detroit. It was. It's there's something about the way it handles uh, race in a way. I think that's a, a really interesting uh, spin. But when he throws out the N word at one point. I was just like, holy shit, I forgot he even said that in this movie. <laughs> right, there's some improv. <laughs> yeah, I saw this one. I actually saw this one at the theater. I was only 12 years old at the time, but my folks really didn't have a problem with me seeing R-rated movies first run, whatever reason that was. I mean, I've told uh, the story on the show before about seeing the Blues Brothers first run, seeing uh, Blade Runner first run. So, yeah, Beverly Hills Cops saw it in the theater, and then uh, this was the first first bootleg tape that I'd ever come across. At one point, my dad came home from work and he had a VHS tape that had on the label Beverly Hills Cop written very neatly. And I couldn't believe I had never seen a copy of a tape that wasn't from a video store. So I watched this thing. I don't know how many times on VHS. So really watching it again um, for the show. And I was watching how the show came about really was probably one of the most organic ways any episode has ever come across. I mean, these shows, a lot of times I will put so much work into putting them together and I will, you know, come up with what movie I want to cover. And I'm just working on that, working on interviews and stuff. And a few months ago, I was thinking about that line that Jonathan Wood says. It might have even been for the pin episode, Elric, where the line that he says in Beverly Hills Cop about when he says cuz, he says cuz twice. And I just, I love the way he, he delivers that line to Eddie Murphy. And I was looking for that line and I decided I would rewatch Beverly Hills Cop again. So I'm sitting there on my couch watching Beverly Hills Cop and I'm just like, God, this is such a great movie. I wonder who I could talk to from this movie. And I just, while I'm watching the film, I started reaching out to people and by the following Monday, I had gotten responses from Harold Faltermeyer, from Daniel Petrie Jr., and from Stephen Burkoff. And I was like, okay, that's it. Episode is born. And then after that, it's like, well, you know, I've talked to Ronnie Cox before. I wonder if I could get him again. I'd love to talk to John Ashton. I'd love to talk to Judge Reinhold. 
yeah, this episode just came about. I mean, I never did get Reinhold, and of course, I didn't get Eddie Murphy, I didn't get Martin Brest, but so many great interviews for this one. I'm really excited, and like I said, this is the easiest an episode has ever come together for me. Until you spoke to us. And then you made it so difficult on me. Diva demands right and left. Mm -hmm. Well, in this movie, of course, was very close to so many Detroiters' hearts because of the opening of this film, being set in Detroit, seeing the home city being portrayed on film. And this was one of the first times I ever remember seeing Detroit being portrayed on film. And the first time I remember, hey, there's a movie crew in Detroit. It was a really big deal. Of course, we've talked on the show before about things like Detroit 9000, but that was coming out around the time I was born. There were other movies that obviously had shot in Detroit subsequently to that. I mean, Michael Bay is always coming back to the city for a while. Danny DeVito was a big uh, fan of the city. So the opening of Renaissance Man and these kind of things are shot in Detroit. But this was the first really big one. Look at here's Eddie Murphy in his Mumford High School t-shirt. Here's Eddie Murphy you know, in the back of this truck that's tearing ass through all of these disparate locations within Detroit city limits. It was one of those points of pride for us. And they only spend what, 10, 15 minutes in, in Detroit. And then we're off to Beverly Hills, but it was such a big deal for everybody here in the city. I'm surprised they never did the reversal of bringing the Beverly Hills cops to Detroit to do that sequel, you know, set it all in Detroit. That would be a cool movie. That would be very cool. And I mean, in the, the beginning of the second one, you get a little bit more of Detroit. But then in the third one, it's like, this is an anonymous warehouse someplace in a parking lot. And it's probably shot two blocks down the street in Burbank. Very little Detroit in the third movie. I mean, very little anything in the third movie. <laughs> Except George Lucas. You do get Gil Hill in the third movie for uh, a split second, and he gets to die in the third one. Spoilers. But he was kind of a local staple around here, and he was actually a city councilman for a while. So, uh, And I think he kind of rode the Beverly Hills Cop popularity train into that position, though he had been around before that time. What do we really know about Gil Hill? We know Gil Hill had to be replaced as head of homicide when his record became the worst in Detroit history. Now we find out, as president of the city council, Gil Hill voted to sell a valuable city property to a developer for a dollar. A dollar? When asked, Gil Hill admitted he'd been asleep at the switch. Gil Hill has failed the test. It's time to vote no to failed leadership. With the opening, I really watching it again. As a, when I watched it when we were young, I, I don't think I even really thought how they were portraying Detroit. I'm sure I just could tell that it was gritty. But it, I love that it's like just so full of life, you know. And it feels it, it's obviously a melting pot, but it's not being portrayed in a way where everyone looks unhappy and depressed, even though the uh, you know, except the buildings do, <laughs> but the people are laughing, and there's a man checking out a woman leaving in a bar, and it just—it feels like it's overflowing with life. It feels uh, like a place where you have to be, use your gut to survive. It feels, you know, a lot of these things. It almost works as a perfect backstory for a character. Like the place is backstory, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it really is an electrifying opening that just throws you into the world, and uh, and you're—I mean, you are you are aboard this from from the from the first shot and it, it just it, it takes off and and just you know I'm, I'm speaking in cliches here but that's hell it's an action-packed thrill ride it's a roller coaster oh. of a film 
I, I, I agree with all of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really, it's really funny like that. It, but it, you know, it does have some weight to the character and, and that it's like, uh, shows his, his ability to be completely impulsive. I think maybe that's one of the things I must have loved as a kid is just seeing this character just can make up anything on a dime. And his first instinct is just to, you know, lie. And he's on the back of the truck and then the truck's taking you on this wild ride through the city. Uh, it really does. Like you said, it really just grabs you. And, uh, I think it's a great way to hook an audience straight away. And I never thought I would actually say these words out loud, but that Glenn Fry song really grabs you <laughs> in the opening credits. <laughs> and then the, the uh, what is it? The, the Pointer Sisters with the Neutron Dance when they're careening through Detroit. I was just like, this is great. And just the, the line of cop cars that are coming after the semi and just the way that the semi is just plowing through all these cars on the side streets. I mean, it looks fantastic. And what, one thing that one of my uh, friends was wanted me to ask you guys is did you notice all of the people on the streets actually looking at the movie being filmed versus like being just regular extras but apparently you can see that fairly easily especially when the truck's like coming uh, down the street but my my eye is on the truck more than the people on the side of the the road gawking i definitely know he's watching i i've seen enough like films shot in philly where you can always tell like people are gawking and yeah it's it's going on with there's that one specific shot where it's just like there's two or three people that you're like couldn't they've edited around that yeah they did so much damage downtown i mean we're still trying to recover from it i mean that's that's (laughs) why we have so much uh economic uh strife uh is just all the damage all. caused by Axel Foley back in 1984. Yeah. <laughs> you know the one thing cuz I always remember the old man walking towards the camera. I remember the guys coming out of the the bar and everything. I forgot until last night when I was rewatching the uh cuz there's a couple guys wearing basically like Michael Jackson type jackets in Detroit. And then it's funny to see them again, kind of, you know, two very upscale guys wearing the Michael Jackson outfits in Beverly Hills. So it's kind of nice that there's this, uh, you know, the, the kind of co-opting of urban culture that we see in Beverly Hills versus the real deal happening uh, in Detroit. Yeah. There's is probably a lot more expensive. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure one of those coats probably costs as much as those guys, you know, their their apartment for for a year. What you're saying about the Pointer Sister, the Neutron Dance, I think how it's working in contrast to the action scene is is really the tone of this movie, that action comedy, like the perfect synthesis of those two things, which are so hard to pull off. And really, I think only a handful of movies do it as well uh, as this one does. Whereas, you know, even in the sequel, it becomes much more in the action mode and and it takes on a, that tonal difference. So I think having, you know, this carnage set to a song where you know it's OK to be laughing at the scene. Uh, gives you permission in a way is, is great. It feels both very organic and extremely calculated. And at this point, like, you know, obviously with things like Saturday Night Fever and Grease and, and other stuff in the 70s, you know, the film soundtrack as phenomena. But I, I think this is the first time it really happened in such a ubiquitous way in the 80s, where like pretty much every song from the soundtrack that was released as a single was a massive hit. I remember the summer this movie came out, it was you could not avoid any of the songs. Uh, even like the lesser hits, like the, uh, Patty LaBelle song was, uh, was just like really, re- you know, like you could not go anywhere without hearing, uh, hearing like Neutron Dance, for example. And my favorite example of how much Neutron Dance permeated pop culture that summer was there was a, a Disney special where they had the Pointer Sisters there and a bunch of people dressed up like the Tron characters as <laughs> if it was the new 
Tron dance. And that, that clip is on YouTube, and it's one of my favorite things that's ever happened on this planet. It's just so ridiculous, and it kind of speaks of the far-reaching impact that this movie had on pop culture, that they were trying to bring other things of pop culture into it to kind of ride that Beverly Hills Cop wave of success. Well, of course, we'll be talking about Axel F. I mean, such a simple theme, but something that just, again, took pop culture by storm and that it's still with us today. Just the uh, we'll talk about the, the crazy frog uh, version of it. But I mean, this the song comes back and it sticks with us after all these years. It's amazing that in 2017, you know, we can still recognize and, and even Axel F is kind of like uh, if you guys are fans of uh, You're the Man Now Dog, uh, the website, you know, that's one of the. I don't know, dozen or so songs that is kind of used as almost like internet shorthand for things. So it's, <laughs> it's amazing that it's still out there with us. It gets an instant smile. That's the thing. As soon as I turned it on yep. again last night, I'm just smiling from start to end. As soon as the music comes on, it's great. It's a great feeling. Well, in the way that you guys are talking about the mix of the action and the comedy, I mean, Gil Hill as Inspector Todd and the way that it comes in and he just starts yelling at Axel Foley at one point for this bust at the beginning going wrong. The mayor called the chief, the chief called the deputy chief, the deputy chief just chewed my ass out. It is such a cliche. I mean, I love the way that they kind of upend that cliche in um, So I Married an Axe Murderer. Again, probably something I would never say uh, out loud, but here I am saying <laughs> it again. You know, I'm, I'm having doubts about being a cop. You know, it's, it's not like how it is on TV. Why can't you be like the captain on Starsky and Hodge? You know, where you come in and you haul me into your office and you bore me out because you're sick and tired of defending my screwball antics to the commissioner? Why can't you do that? Well, the truth of the matter is I don't report to a commissioner. I report to a committee, some of whom are appointed, some elected, and the rest co-opted on a biannual basis. It's a quorum, so to speak. A quorum? Yeah. Then that Eddie Murphy takes that and then makes a joke out of it. And that's what he's doing through this whole thing. I mean, you talked to Chris about his first instinct to lie and that great thing in that opening scene with the, uh, the, the two guys that he's trying to sell the cigarettes to when the, um, the cop car pulls up and he's just like, Oh, officer, you know what just happened a few minutes ago? You ain't gonna believe this shit. Check this out. The truck, it just stopped, man. It just stopped. You got some jumper cables. You give me a jump. You know, he just he's right there with those lines, just selling it the whole time. I love it. Yeah, he's he's such a like the, the character Axel Foley is just such a master bullshit artist, but he's also really good at what he does too, which is which is fantastic. I mean, you could very easily easily have him been like the slacker cop who who just kind of wisecracks and doesn't really get anything done. But clearly, as this movie as this movie points out, like he finds out, you know, he gets to the bottom of Mikey's murder. You know, it's personal. It's more personal than say the cigarette, you know, the cigarette truck. But you know, the the fact is that he is still legitimately good at his job even though he not so much cuts corners but he does things in his own way that kind of infuriate his his superiors but at the end of the day he gets he gets shit done yeah and he's not like almost every other character in the 80s especially cop characters it's not about being cool and no point do they make him look like he's trying to look cool or be cool you look at the way he's dressed and his car and you realize no no he's he's got a, a and his laugh which is a total dorky laugh but it's completely <laughs> infectious and then he's basically a really honorable guy who's really good at his job and happens to be funny like he has levity on his side beyond that he never once is actually putting on that i'm the cool slow motion cop which i think is one of the reasons it's just such a lovable uh character 
Yeah, it's like you wish that Will Smith and Martin Lawrence had been as funny as Axel Foley, but instead oh, yeah. they're too busy yeah. having the camera go around them in slow motion and saying, you know, shit just got real. Shit just got real. Shit just got real! But I always love that moment, that split second when Axel is coming up with his lie, especially when he's at Victor Maitland's club and the <laughs> Major D, you know, how can I help you? And he just right into character so good and then the the, you know the first time that we because we kind of see that with him doing that to the other cops and everything but really one of the first times is when he does show up in beverly hills and just decides to stop at one of the most expensive uh hotels and bullshits his way into a room and i love that as well talk about a great you know that's the the, the N-word scene that I talked about earlier, but just, again, the way that he's able to pull all that stuff out of his ass and just get what he wants. You almost never see him thinking, besides those little moments. It, it's like <laughs> if character is action, this is the greatest action character ever, right? Because he's just always doing. He doesn't sit around pondering what to do or asking for permission. He's just always in motion, and that's a great character. He's really just ahead of everything that, that's coming at him. And it, it doesn't feel scripted. It just feels natural. Like, you believe everything that this character does because you believe that he's he's this smart and this thinking ahead. And just, like, he's a great guy who knows what he's doing, and he's just ahead of everyone else and everyone else is just is just like three steps behind them so at the heart of this movie is there's basically two things that are going on one is him solving michael tandino's murder and by the way i love the character names in this movie these these character names are almost like second nature to me you know like fucking Bogomil and rosewood and taggart i mean all of these names are just drilled into my my mind you know victor maitland especially is is the, one of the greatest character names but so he's trying to solve Michael Tandino's murder, and then he's trying to somehow – I don't know if it's make peace with the Beverly Hills Police Department, but at least get them to go along with him and make this arrest, at least not have them be enemies pretty much. And that relationship with Rosewood and, and Taggart and eventually uh, Bogomil, I mean, I love that. I love the way that that relationship changes, and to your point, Chris – Foley is such a good cop. I love that he knows more about, you know, drug smuggling and about all these other things than Rosewood and Taggart. At one point, he's just like, what, you guys just get your badges? And he's explaining about the, uh, he, he talks about the coffee grounds. I mean, Bogomil gets it. As soon as he says about the coffee grounds, Bogomil's right there with him. But Taggart and Rosewood aren't as smart as Axel Foley is. I mean, they're good cops, but they're not nearly as, as keen and with it as he is. Well, and that's just the location difference, right? I mean, you're in Detroit. How much action do you get a day versus probably more action in a day than a year in Beverly Hills? And I think that's a great way to highlight it really quick. Oh, yeah. He's seen a lot of shit go down as opposed to these guys who just seem like almost glorified meter mates. Yeah. I mean, Tiger and Rosewood are very good cops for Beverly Hills. But obviously, you know, <laughs> Foley comes in and he's just he's it's part of the reason why I enjoyed the super cops bit so much. Is because, like, Foley clearly is the super cop here. Before you chastise these two officers, I think it's something you should know. The only reason that they were at a strip bar is because they were tailing me and I went to this place. Now, these two officers were sitting outside wondering what I was doing. I wasn't having a good time. I'm into things like that. Anyway, these guys waited outside. And the only reason that they came in was because they saw two suspicious-looking gentlemen with bulges in their jackets going into the place. Well, it turns out that these guys were going to commit a robbery, sir. These men watched them, waited for them to make their move, 
and then they foiled a crime. I did not know what was going on. I was watching the show having fun. I'm still freaked out by it. You must have a sixth sense. I don't know what you teach these fellows, but they're not just regular cops, okay? They're super cops. And the only thing missing on these guys are capes. Oh, yeah. The scene at the strip club, what you're talking about, that is one of my favorite bits. I mean, especially like Foley, he's on the job, but not on the job. He's not officially there. So he's fine to drink and just enjoy himself. And the way that he's looking at the women dancing versus tech and Rosewood with their back to them and him, you know, talking to, to Billy about his dick getting hard and stuff. I mean, <laughs> that is great. But then, yeah, when he sees the guy come in with that long coat on, I mean, that's when things, you know, that, that is the moment where shit gets real, but you don't have yeah. to say shit just got real. Right. Except that he has to look at Taggart and be like, no, no fucking around this time. Like, right. and, and it's nice that Taggart knows, he believes him. It's the first time he sees yeah. him as a cop. It, it's a breakthrough moment. It, Ta- Taggart, I really think if you look at the movie, the biggest uh, arc in the movie is Taggart. Tegger has a real arc to where he starts and ends and every, compared to everyone else in this movie. And I, and I like that growth uh, in their friendship. It's great. Right. Yeah. Billy is ready. You know, yeah. Billy, <laughs> Billy wants to be Axel Foley, basically. You know, he, him talking about the end of uh, Butch Cassidy and the t- Sundance Kid. <laughs> he's right there, man. He wants this kind of stuff. But yeah, Taggart is the guy who's reluctant to believe anything and really wants to follow the book until he realizes that the book might not be the best way to go. I crack up seeing a very young Damon Wayans in this film. It took, I didn't realize until years later when I was rewatching it that that was Damon Wayans because I kind of remember Damon Wayans showing up and like, I'm going to get you, sucker. Obviously, he looked a lot older by that time. Um, even though it was probably not that many years later, I guess it was the, uh, the mustache that he had, but. Yeah, rewatching this and seeing him as the banana salesman, I was very happy about that. Yeah, and I re- did read that uh, it was just because Eddie Murphy pulled him in to the film, just grabbed him. He knew his work. The director didn't know his work, so they just grabbed him in for that cameo, which is great. It's like he's playing one of his characters. And I have to say, Bronson Pinchot, this doesn't get said very often, especially in the White Household. Bronson Pinchot doing a fantastic job as Serge. I mean, that character, of course, he's popular enough to come back in the third one. But that little scene actually is two scenes in the film. Fantastic. And I think that obviously that's what really set him on his path. (laughs) This is what gave us perfect strangers, for better or worse. Balky flashbacks. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love this twist of lemon. (laughs) what's so great about that scene too is that it almost seems like eddie murphy is on the verge of breaking character any second and just laughing because he is enjoying pinchot's performance so much and i mean how can you not he's he's so hilarious in that scene just getting very little to do other than you know talking about like oh you like this piece you know and and he's like when he says uh, get the fuck out of here oh i cannot you know i'm not i'm doing a terrible bronson pinchot here but that scene it's just eddie murphy is eddie murphy the actor and axel foley the character both get just such a huge kick out of this character and you get the sense that foley has never met anyone like this before in his life, and he's just taking it in and just endlessly amused by it. And it's such, it is a fantastic scene. And yeah, I mean, the power of the character is so great that he's the highlight when he makes his brief appearance in, uh, in Beverly Hills Cop 3. 
Yeah, when his voice goes up, when he's like, no, I cannot, it's just like. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) And I have to say, you know, on the other side of the fence, those scenes with Victor Maitland, those scenes with with Jonathan Woods uh, and and Stephen Burkhoff, that's when things get so deadly serious. And this movie can just switch uh, on a dime between those moments. And that's, I think, ultimately what separates this film from so many other action comedies is that you really feel the menace from these characters. I mean, Maitland knows exactly what's going on. Of course, Axel Foley knows exactly what's going on. And it's just this way that these two characters are kind of sizing each other up and playing almost this chess game. It's like, you know, Victor, I know that you're into a lot of crooked shit and I have a pretty good idea that you had Mikey killed. And when I find out for sure, I'm going to fuck you up real bad. And those moments, man, really fucking serious, but that it can be that serious inside of this otherwise very hilarious film is a real testament to what, you know, Martin Brest and Daniel Petri and and, and uh, Benilla were able to come up with for this. I just think it's such a great tonal shift that it really, it really just shows you. I think it's just not only interesting in the context of the film itself. But I think on a larger scale, Hollywood really took notice. And, you know, I, I think every every movie from like the Lethal Weapon franchise to the Bad Boys franchise can really, you know, takes a lot of notes from the way Maitland is in Beverly Hills Cop because you have that humor and then you have that action. And, you know, obviously Bad Boys and the Lethal Weapon movies are very different kind of movies. But at their heart is you have the the, you know, the crime and you have the comedy. And, you know, you marry that together. Movies have done that before, obviously, but with Beverly Hills Cop, it did it on such a mainstream level that it really kind of laid the groundwork for the rest of the 80s in terms of what films could be. And the action comedy really just blew up like never before because of Beverly Hills Cop. And I think when you go down to it, it is moments like, you know, that sequence where uh, at, at Maitland's Mansion, you know, like there's real danger. Like Murphy, like fully gets shot. I mean, there, you know, like you're not entirely sure that you know, Rosewood is going to make it out of there alive or, you know, or that our, one of our main characters may not take a hit. So it's it's really kind of interesting on that level to uh, to watch what came after it. And it's the birth of one of my favorite uh, things about the 80s, which is uh, the Eurovillain and, and and the classically trained actor in the role of Eurovillain versus uh, when you put, uh, you know, Bronson Pinchot and Eddie Murphy together, there's movement and improv. And but when you get Stephen Burkhoff uh, or, you know, Jurgen Perchnow or uh, you know, Die Hard, you know, uh, you know, these these guys who are it's about stillness. It's about uh, staying on page. You know, and, and it's a kind of, they were, I, I called, uh, Burkhoff the Harold Pinter villain, you know, cause every, he's, he's talking in with single, single words with long pauses in between and it sucks all the air out of the room, you know, like you've gone from Eddie Murphy making jokes, he walks in the room and now Burkhoff's giving him these one word answers that are all very menacing, uh, responses. And, and it really became, you know, Lethal Weapon, all these films started to take foreigners. Uh, sometimes it's South Africa, I think, in some of the lethal weapons, but it's always somebody from a foreign country, and suddenly they seem scarier <laughs> than if they were just America. Now listen to me, my tough little friend. I don't know from under what stone you crawled, or where you get these ridiculous ideas about me, but it seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest fucking idea who you're dealing with. Now, 
My advice to you is crawl back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed. Okay? Yeah. Joss Ackland's diplomatic immunity is still one of my favorite lines. <laughs> and of course, yeah, we wouldn't have a Hans Gruber if we didn't have oh, yeah, Victor I Maitland. And I, and I didn't know that until I went to college that I remember being in college and uh, having to st- study a Stephen Burkhoff play and my mind being so blown. I can't even I can't even do it justice. I had to look it up. I was like, it can't be the same guy who was the villain, you know, in this movie. And then it turns out he's a major playwright, like a major uh, theater guy. So, it, you know, kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I think I fucked up Jonathan Banks's name twice. I think I've called him Jonathan Woods, who's a writer that I know from uh, Florida. So Jonathan Banks uh, as Zach. And then Jonathan Banks, his, well, his menace is fantastic. He's still doing dead, the same kind stare. of, oh God, still doing that today in Better Call Saul. His death is one of the greatest moments to me. Just the way that he acts out being shot is fantastic. It really is just like, oh, wow, you know, the Something really real just happened. And the most ballet performance. Yes. Well, the way and the way he's shot by Axel, that's the most that's the moment where I most believe that uh, Axel was a cop Mm because the squat, the position he's in, it's like he outsmarted him with something from his training versus I'm just a career bad guy who maybe went to, you know, war or something, but didn't feel it it really felt like it's got some gravity to that moment between them. In this film, the one cliche that wasn't in this film that other films would explore is the love interest. And I'm so glad, you know, he comes back to Beverly Hills. He goes to see Jenny Summers and just that there wasn't a romance there. They're not rekindling something that she is his friend and his confidant more than the love interest. So I'm really glad for that. You know, she, and she sticks around through so much of it. I mean, yes, she kind of becomes like the, you know, the, the heroine in distress, you know, the kidnap victim and all that. But it just seems like if it wasn't her, it would have been Billy. You know, it just seems like there yeah. had to be a kidnapping at some point. It just happened to be her. But again, she doesn't seem necessarily that helpless. She's very smart and that she's with us through the end when she's standing around with Axel and Taggart and the rest of these guys. And she doesn't seem out of place. And the only mention of the word love is between two friends at the start. You know, Axel's friend stares at him saying, I love you, man. And you're like, whoa, this is really, you know, first 15 minutes of movie. And it feels very honest and open. And that's the only mention of love. This idea of actually caring so much about someone that you would, you know, basically chase it down till, you know, even in risk of death. And that James Russo can come into a movie and have five minutes and play such a memorable role. And for him to go from, you know, sitting in front of Axel's refrigerator with the door wide open, eating his food and, you know, joking around in the whole pool hall scene. I love the pool hall scene. Mm-hmm. And then the way that he can kind of turn on a dime and, and the way that he's talking to the Jonathan Banks character and just like, oh, I was going to bring these back and just lying his ass off. And you know, he's. You know, he, he's been bad from the beginning, but he has a good heart. What we've seen from the dialogue with him and Axel talking about how he didn't give up Axel when they were kids. It, it's, it's such a wonderful role for such a, a, a short amount of time on screen. It, it goes it goes dark so quick. You know, you're, you haven't had anything actually dark until the moment where Banks shows up. And it just it's just like in one instant it goes to this really dark place. Uh, and Axel kind of just falls out of frame and you forget about him. And then you're just in their little drama for a couple minutes. And when he dies, it's such a tone. 
tonal shift potentially could change the whole movie but luckily there was a montage of beverly hills to come <laughs> right, right. <laughs> thank god for that <laughs> yeah to, to a, that fantastic patty the bell song right yeah where I, I i liken that sequence to uh landing on an alien planet where uh the people look like their dogs there's great shots where she's walking her dog and they look the same it's amazing other than maybe one kind of clunky delivery from Gil Hill at the beginning. You see, I don't have any bit of it left, don't you? Maybe other than that, I think that this movie is perfect. What did you guys think of Beverly Hills? Like, not just from the sequence, but just in general. Like, when you're growing up not from a place like that or having never been to a place like that, what did you grow up thinking? When you saw the sequence, what did you think of this place that it's presenting? Because I'm just curious. It seemed very strange to me. Um, it, it just, you know, I grew up in uh, I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, and you know, it's a working class city. So to see that kind of wealth and opulence was just, it just seemed so alien to me. And it seemed really, it seemed silly to me. Like I remember just laughing at all the sequences and wondering like, why would anyone want to live there? And, you know, not really, not really understanding like fame or celebrity and the kind of like grotesque wealth that exists in Beverly Hills. Like it, it just seemed very, uh, very like a place that was worthy of mocking to me. <laughs> I was always surprised by the way that the shop signs were just kind of like placards on the wall instead of being, you know, I'm used to like garish, you know, titles above the door kind of thing or signs out on the road, you know, come on in kind of thing. So just the way that everything was so understated and that it was like these, you know, gold and silver looking signs with the names just very plainly stamped in them. It was just like, oh, that's, that's very odd that it is that way. Um, and then, yeah, just the amount of uh, of opulence and just the the strange characters that Foley sees walking down the street um, is pretty good. And then it's funny to me, it cracks me up now, that I'm sure we we're supposed to gasp in horror when the one guy says that rooms at the, at the Beverly Hills Hotel are $235 a night. How things have changed. My gosh. <laughs> That is a bargain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is great. But the, what you can tell from Axel's expression, that's like a week's pay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> of the currency. He's just like, oh. No, I mean, it's funny because like growing up, you watch this and you think uh, it's this mythical idea, but you assume because of the film that it is an accurate portrayal of what Beverly Hills is. But uh, then I moved to L.A. and of course I discovered it's completely realistic. That's what I thought. <laughs> they nailed it, beat for beat. I, my wife got a job <laughs> in the area, and I had to take her in once, and I couldn't – my brain couldn't even comprehend that it was exactly like the opening montage. Like, there was nothing different about it. I even got thrown through a window my first day there. <laughs> <laughs> what happened when you got hit by a car? Did you get arrested for oh, jaywalking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but how great is that scene? I mean, it's one of the funniest. It, it, everything about it should make no sense on paper. And yet it's a perfect introduction to Beverly Hills where, you know, he gets thrown out uh, out of a window through a window by like six goons. And of course, the guy throwing it there, you know, he's losing money by smashing his own window. <laughs> A black man being thrown through a window in Beverly Hills is probably one of the greatest images. I just to make your brain race. Ugh. Same thing happens all the time, from what I understand. The, the homeless jokes are very true, though, because uh, when you first when I first got to LA, I did hear a lot. Like there was the, these rumors that there was an unmarked van that will drive through Beverly Hills, uh, pick up homeless people, and drive them to Santa Monica. Just <laughs> <let them> <laughs> and it's one of those great myths you hear about this the place. It's pretty funny. What I found interesting, we're going to hear some uh, interviews coming up here pretty soon. One of the most interesting things that I uh, learned was that Ronnie Cox 
one of his first days on the job is at the end of the movie when he is explaining all of the things that happened to his boss and just the way that he has to be the liar at the end of the movie but that's one of the first things that he does so he doesn't have those things to build on of him being such a straight-laced cop but that for me of course is the moment of triumph is when Bogomil lies to save everybody's ass Absolutely, because by that point, you know, the respect for Foley has just been earned. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they realize, oh yeah, this guy's unconventional ways, they really work. They work better than the way we've been doing things. The cop code is stronger than everything else by the end, which is nice, uh, in the film. You know, the casting of him last night, cause I hadn't seen it in a while, and as soon as he sprung up, my brain straight away went, oh, is this the one where he turns out to, the twist end twist villain because so it's great having because Robocop and all these other movies get <laughs> ma- mashed up in your brain. Uh, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a great feeling actually to, to be surprised. You forget how, how, you know, great a guy he is in this. Yeah, he is wonderful. And, and the guy that plays his boss, I think is really good too. <laughs> and especially when Axel starts to make fun of him and they're all like hushing him and, uh, he's like, what? He, he can hear through walls. And they're like, yes, he can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great introduction. <laughs> you know, I don't even mind Paul Reiser in this film. I mean, talk about me saying things that I don't usually say. That's one of them. <laughs> I mean, I think other than his role in Aliens, where I loved when he gets killed by the aliens, spoilers, I just really didn't care for this guy very much other than some of his stand-up. But he was so good as Jeffrey in this film. Yeah, I kind of wanted a bigger role. There was some You really do almost want The only thing you crave is a little more Detroit by the end. I mean, the movie's perfect, but there's a part of me that wants to see some of those people again. And probably that's part of why a sequel was always on the cards, like returning to these worlds. And we'll definitely be talking about the sequels in the next half of the show. So first, we're going to take a break, and we're going to play a series of interviews. First, we're going to hear from writer Daniel Petrie Jr. Next, we'll hear from Victor Maitland himself, Stephen Burkhoff. Then from Bogomil, Ronnie Cox. From Taggart, John Ashton. And from the composer of Axel F. and many other things, Harold Faltermeyer. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. (laughs) And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone, welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, 
you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First, we're going to hear from the writer of Beverly Hills Cop, Mr. Daniel Petrie Jr. Beverly Hills Cop seems to be at an interesting intersection because this is, I'm sure that you had written things beforehand, but this seems to be the one where you got your name out there. And I know that it had a very storied history to it. Can you kind of tell me how your career kind of intersects with Beverly Hills Cop? You're right in observing that it launched it, certainly in any kind of public eye. But the thing that launched me in the industry was a script that was filmed five years later. It was called The Big Easy with Dennis Quaid and Ellen Barkin. That script had sold two weeks before. And it was one of those script sales that, uh, excited some industry attention. I was the, I was the new writer of the nanosecond. Everybody wanted to read this script that had been preemptively purchased off the market. And among those were the, uh, development executives at Paramount and also at Simpson Bruckheimer. My agent called. Two weeks after selling the script and said they've got a project called Beverly Drive or Beverly Hills Cop. I said, what's it about? Well, it's about a, a cop from a blue collar area coming to Beverly Hills to uh, investigate a crime. Well, I thought that was the funniest idea, the best idea that I'd heard because of the incongruity. At that time, the cop was from Pittsburgh. So I thought it was going to be uh, a comedy. The reason I found it so funny is that up until really that moment, I was this living the life of a starving writer. Now, I was married. My wife was working. So we had health insurance. I wasn't literally starving. And I, I actually had an office to go to that was very cheap. But that office was located at the corner of Little Santa Monica and Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. And my budget for lunches during the week was 20 bucks for the week. Even then, you know, you couldn't uh, really stand at that intersection and conveniently walk to many places that you could get lunch for less than $20 a day, <laughs> let alone per week. And everything about Beverly Hills 
just walking through, you know, without money in my pocket, just was endlessly amusing. I'd look at a at the clothing in a in a boutique and think, no one wears that. How do they stay in business? I pass uh, an art gallery and I think, my God, someone will buy that and put it in their house. It just these things would strike me as so incredible. I'd hear. Uh, outside my window, a screech of brakes and the Mercedes has collided with the rolls and the poodle is escaping and the women are pulling their wigs off, each other's wigs off. I had an endless store of amusement about Beverly Hills. So I was kind of surprised when the script, there were three previous scripts that were sent to me and they weren't comedies. Danilo Bach the original writer of, of Beverly Drive, who uh, shares story credit with me on the movie, generously describes his draft as a cop melodrama. Uh, but when I, of course, thought about it, with the Big Easy as a writing sample, no one would hire me to do a comedy. And your listeners have probably already figured out that I'm not that funny in the room, nor does pitching the plot of Beverly Hills Cop make it sound like it's a comedy? If you think about it, guy in Detroit, best friend, gets killed in the hallway, he vows revenge, goes, you know, none of that sounds particularly funny. It's not the plot that is funny, it's the incongruity of the Detroit cop in Beverly Hills that provides the humor. That job and that intersection between Beverly Hills Cop and The Big Easy, me getting the job on the basis of being the, the new cop melodrama writer and turning it to comedy, that's entirely the foundation of my career. So was your first try at this, was your first try to turn it into a comedy, or did you try to stay in those cop lines, in, the, in that Danilo melodrama? No, it couldn't help but be a comedy. I, I, and I told them that I thought it would be funny. But the then head of development, once the draft came in, the then head of development, I think, spoke for everyone at Paramount and at Simpson Bruckheimer by saying, he called me into his office and, and said, Dan, the script is, it's really funny. Well, thank you. No, no, I'm serious. It's really, really funny. Oh, thank you so much. And then he went on to say, and who would have thought, knowing you, <laughs> which <laughs> I've always, I've always treasured. I told them that I, I thought that there would be a funnier version with the same plot. And they were, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, give that a shot. Great. But they were really happy when they got the script. So much so that Paramount greenlit the second draft. And the head of production at Paramount at the time, one of the great executives in our business of all time, Jeffrey Katzenberg, called me and said, Dan, just want to tell you, this never happens. <laughs> you know, don't. Get used to that. You know, don't, don't think development is normally this short. Well, it certainly wasn't. This, the sequel was that there was an unexpected, uh, uh, casting, uh, choice. And that leads into another story. Well, tell me about that. At this 
particular point when it's being greenlit, is Sylvester Stallone already attached to this or? No, they greenlit it and they had a list of actors that they thought were, were realistic targets for the lead. Eddie Murphy was not on that list uh, because, uh, not because of any lack of uh, enthusiasm on Paramount's part to work with Eddie Murphy. In fact, uh, he and Jeffrey Katzenberg were very close. It was the fact that Paramount was developing three scripts specifically as starring vehicles for Eddie Murphy, who had only a limited period of time in his hiatus uh, from Saturday Night Live, which he was still on at the time. So it was considered that he was not available. So they had their list, but they kept reminding each other, oh, no, don't show it to this actor. Remember that we can't do anything on casting until Sylvester Stallone passes. And it was assumed that he would, but it was just considered a courtesy because he had an overall deal on the lot that and had done them a big favor uh, by directing uh, Staying Alive that every uh, potential, you know, any any leading man role that he could conceivably play would be offered to him first. And they did. They thought it was a pro forma thing. But to their surprise, he accepted, and which was terrific for them and and a mixed blessing for me because I knew that, that you know, the guy's an Oscar-winning screenwriter. He's going to take over the script at some point and make it his own. And that's his right. I did a draft with his notes, which I didn't personally um, personally like as much. And then, indeed, he did. He went on from there uh, rewriting. And, you know, he's he's actually very, very smart and smart about his his own work. And so his instinct was to lessen the comedy of the script and amp up the action. The effect of that, though, was to amp up the budget. So as his drafts came in, Paramount grew increasingly concerned that a comedy to release around Christmas time was going to be a cop action movie coming out against other cop action movies that were scheduled for the same time. And ultimately, a month before shooting was to begin, they had a big meeting. I had just been hired back on the project to work behind and rewrite Stallone without offending him, but put the comedy back. And I uh, was waiting in an office to come in and tell them what I would do. And I was working on the script and didn't notice the time passing until suddenly I realized I'd been waiting for like two and a half hours. What they were in there doing was uh, taking a big leap of faith. They were going to ask Mr. Stallone, who was pay or play. If they didn't do the movie with him, he would have to be paid anyway. So they decided to present him with this alternative. They said that here's the deal. 
would you either do the Dan Petrie draft that you originally committed to without any changes, which if you're up for it, we'll still do it with you as scheduled. Or if your thinking has moved on, then why don't you take everything that you have written plus the draft that Dan wrote with your notes and take that material. And so long as it's not a cop coming from out of town to Beverly Hills or L.A., make another movie with that. And we'll give you that material. The unspoken thing is we'll give you that material in exchange for you forgiving the $3 million that we owe you. And being a real gent, Mr. Stallone took the second alternative. He ultimately made Cobra, partly based on the material that he created for Beverly Hills Cop, which was a very successful movie at the time. We were allowed to go on. Now, they did not, when they made that deal with Sylvester Stallone, with a month before shooting had to start, they did not have Eddie Murphy. They couldn't offer it to Eddie Murphy, who was friends with Sylvester Stallone's then-girlfriend, the model Brigitte Nielsen. So they knew that any attempt to say, hey, we're thinking of making a change, you know, Eddie, would you read this? Would instantly get back to Stallone and they'd be killed, you know. So they had to take this chance. But in the meantime, those three projects that were developed for Eddie Murphy had not worked out the way that they had hoped, either that they came in and weren't good or came in and needed more work or weren't ready yet. But something had happened to each one that threw it off the rails and removed it from consideration from this particular hiatus period. 48 hours later, Eddie Murphy said yes. And what followed was, uh, uh, for me, the, uh, one of the most intense months of my life, rewriting not so much for for Eddie Murphy. He only wanted one. He, you know, he knew that he would he would uh, goof around with his dialogue. That's what he's known for. So, of course, everyone would want that. He only wanted one change in the text of the script, and that was the age of the character. From I think I had thirty three. He was then twenty three. So, boom, twenty three. That was it. There was no mention of the character's race, so you didn't have to even change that. But there were a lot of changes required because sets had been built or were under construction based on Stallone's draft. The schedule, the budget, all of these things were were a lot was in place that the script needed to be adjusted to the production rather, rather than the other way around. So I had my first taste of what it is to do a production rewrite, very different from an ordinary rewrite. And in a development rewrite, you're consulting with your own imagination and the studio executives or the director or whoever is giving you notes. In a production rewrite, you're consulting with people like the first AD, you know, who said, can this scene, if I, if I write a scene like this, would it have to be day or would you want it to be at night? 
how many extras do you think we could have? Yeah, somebody else, you know. It's an arcane skill and one that I'd never have been qualified to do if they were hiring somebody who was experienced at doing it on the open market. I just, no one would have any confidence that I would know how to do that. The fact that I was able to, though, proved very important for my career because when Michael Eisner and Jeff Katzenberg left Paramount to go to Disney, they were not only wanting to to bring me on board as a writer at the studio, but were willing to consider that I could be a producer as well. Based, I think, to a great degree that I knew enough about production that I could pull that off. What was your relationship like with Martin Brest? It was tense. This was an early picture for him. It came off some rough experiences that he'd had in the business. And reading between the lines, I'm not sure that he had the ideal relationship with uh, Sylvester Stallone. So he might have felt a little beaten up on that area. I'm, I'm truly reading between the lines here. For me, it was my first picture. I felt very passionate about it. So that kind of relationship often is fraught with who's taking over my baby. And after I had gotten more experienced, and and especially after I directed myself, I wanted to apologize, you know, to Marty Brest for if I was ever a jerk. To him, and not too long ago, at an event held by the AFI celebrating uh, Jerry Bruckheimer's career, I got a chance to actually do that. To to say, Marty was to the extent that I was an asshole to you, I apologize. And he said, "Well, Dan, you weren't a, you were headstrong, <laughs> but you weren't an asshole," <laughs> which which I I I, I treasured. The distinction. Now you have an epitaph. Yes, that's right. That's right. So I don't see you working much with Eddie Murphy when the shooting is going on, but did you have to work with some of the other actors who, you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of goofing and a lot of uh, uh, ad libbing going on, but did you have to work with any of the actors to try to keep the, the train on the tracks as the writer? No, not at all. Not at all. One of the great things about it's it's truly just genius there are two kinds of people who do improvisations around their lines and my shorthand for it is the bad kind and the good kind <laughs> right the bad kind is they want to improvise because they can't be bothered to learn their lines so they don't know quite what the story is that they're telling and they don't recognize that the other actors are not necessarily going to improvise or they might have a different process of preparation, like a professional one, <laughs> you could call it. So that here's how you can screw up your other actor. If my line is, uh, can you tell me the time? And your line is, there's a clock right there. Fine. Can you tell me the time? There's a clock right there. 
if you do another line that doesn't allow that person to say, there's a clock right there, then that can screw up that scene for the other actor. It can also, yeah, I've got a watch or something like that could, could ignore the fact that we want to call the audience's attention to that particular clock up there because I don't know, because there's a surveillance camera behind it or whatever. We, that's important to the story. Well, if you look at the scenes in Beverly Hills Cop where Eddie Murphy is conning his way past a head waiter, right? Well, every variation of the written lines that Eddie Murphy did allowed the head waiter to say that person's written dialogue. So he was incredibly generous that way to the other actors. He didn't undermine them. He didn't go off. He'd go off the literal lines of the script, but he wouldn't go off the story. He wouldn't go off what that line was meant to do and what it was meant to lead into, what the other actor was going to do. All of that he protected, which is incredible gift to have, to be able to be that inventive, but not turn it into a monologue or into a uh, screw-your-neighbor competition. He would also know when the humor of the scene was more about the other actor. So he would step right into the straight role and let, for example, Bronson Pinchot carry the comedy of that scene in the uh, art gallery, and Eddie is the straight guy in the scene. You walk that line between seriousness, I mean, because he is out there investigating the death of one of his best friends, the murder of one of his best friends. You walk that between the comedy and the seriousness so well, and I think that you know, obviously, Eddie Murphy plays into a lot of that, but really, so much of that comes from the script. And I'm just amazed that you can have that balance between those two things and play it off so well. You know, in real life, things in in the most brutal environments or tense situations, things happen that are really funny. And that's real life. You know, some of the funniest stories you hear are from cops in desperate situations and suddenly somebody needs to urgently go to the bathroom or from soldiers in foxholes, from people in very stressful situations encounter funny things. That's really what I was aiming for. And I think what we are all aiming for is that we didn't want to have funny bad guys or a funny crime or a, a goofy caper or anything like that. We wanted the humor that came from the incongruity of this person investigating in this particular environment and the growing bond between him and the Beverly Hills cops that they forge as they realize that they have more in common than first appears. That's was an absolute focus, and and I've tried to do that ever since. Try to keep even in the with things with a goofy kind of premise like Turner and Hooch, it grounded in a reality 
that uh, that people can understand. After Stallone left the project and you're there doing this uh, production rewrite, what were some of the fingerprints that he had left on the project where you kind of now had to scramble to make things fit into place? Remember, of his drafts went to him. There was nothing in in any of his drafts that we could literally use. But there were some set issues where I think I had the art gallery, if memory serves, I think I had the art gallery as a high-end clothing boutique, but they had switched it to an art gallery. Not really sure at 30 years on what the specific uh, physical production constraints that we had to work within were left over from his versions, but I just know that there were were some. And, you know, they all have a knock-on effect. You talked about how when you first read the script that those early drafts had this cop being from Pittsburgh. Were you the one that switched it to Detroit? I don't think so. I think that perhaps the second writer did switch it to Detroit, but I'm not entirely sure. One more very, very, very nerdy question for you. The names in the screenplay, I mean, I can... Mikey Tandino, Victor Maitland, Billy Rosewood, Axel Foley, these are such distinct names, even all of these years later. Were any of those your invention? Some of them were, but I tried to keep the names from the original script whenever possible. Axel was always Axel. He wasn't always Foley. I forget what the last name was early on, but it didn't clear. Billy became... Rosewood fairly late because his last name didn't clear. You know what I mean by clear? There was an actual person with that actual name who could have theoretically sued us. So we had to change it. Other than that, like I think Lieutenant Bogomil is such a great name. And and Danilo Bach came up with that. He came up with Axel. He came up with, uh, I think maybe I came up with Sergeant Taggart. Who knows at this stage? I never wanted to be one of those writers that in a effort to enhance their potential for getting credit doing a rewrite is the first thing they do is change all of the names of the characters. I thought that was that's such a cheap thing to do, you know, so I wanted to keep all the names wherever possible. Now you talked about how The Big Easy was one of those those big scripts, and I know some of my listeners may not remember some of the bidding wars and some of those times when there was the big script that gets sold and shopped and all that kind of stuff. But I'm curious, you said that that actually sold before Beverly Hills Cop, but then it ends up coming out a few years after Beverly Hills Cop. What's kind of the lifespan of, of The Big Easy in between then? In between then... A director came on board but wasn't attracting the kind of cast that the producer wanted. It was it was something that it was not a bidding war, the sale of the script. It was a sale off of what they call a preemptive bid, where a, an agent will show a script to one particular studio or executive or production company or producer and say, if you're willing to, in effect, pay the price that it would be sold for if a competitive situation developed, you'll have the opportunity to take it off the market. But 
it's understood that it has to be that kind of price, you know, otherwise bid on it later. You know, you, you run the risk of not getting it. On the other hand, our hopes for it could have been maybe nobody would bid at the end of the day. So, but that inaccessibility, he buys the script, announces it in the trades. I think he gave the impression that he bought it for more money than he actually did, but everybody does that. And he took the position that no one in the industry is allowed to read it. Well, of course, everybody wanted to just to show that they could get their hands on it. And I used to be in the mailroom at ICM. We would call up scripts from the files and Xerox them and send them out all the time. You know, it, it was just understood that it was a courtesy that, you know, if your mailroom opposite number of William Morris was stocked for something, you'd help them out because you might be in the same boat in future. So it did get all over town. The same people who would have been offended and kind of rightly so if I had said, hey, would you read my script? We're saying, you know, the next day, how come you didn't let me read your script? <laughs> uh, it was really quite funny. I loved the, the Big Easy, by the way, as the, the film that came out. I mean, Jim McBride is such an interesting director. He's made so many just very different films. I mean, especially I love like Glenn and Randa, especially. How close was that movie to what you had sold? What I had originally sold was titled Windy City and was set in Chicago. I did the majority of the rewrites that took it to New Orleans. And because in the interval, a whole bunch of movies set in Chicago had come out, including one literally with the title Windy City, that we, we just wanted another location. And Jim and Dennis Quaid and I, Dennis Quaid and I flew from L.A. to meet Jim. We had a memorable location scout, which featured the three of us going into a real police station with a police lieutenant who was from the film commission as our escort. And he took us up to homicide. And, of course, Dennis is, is listening very carefully and observing the behavior and the voices and the accents of the cops. And you could see Jim looking around and seeing how everything, what what kinds of things are up on the walls, what jokes, what little uh, mementos are around, the visual references. And I was trying to find out if they took bribes. You know, that's a was a key element. You needed a city where the police force had this kind of standard level of corruption, where you'd kind of be viewed as being quite eccentric if you didn't accept that standard level of corruption, because it's just how things are done down here. But that's a delicate question to ask in a police station. And so I was beating around the bush, you know, trying to phrase this so politely and hypothetically what if and all of that with subordinate clauses and all these kinds of they looked at me like a, I was a Martian. They didn't they literally did not understand what I was getting at. And then 
then it dawned on them and they said, oh, yeah, hell yeah, we do that kind of stuff all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It was great fun. And how was it kind of revisiting that as a television show a few years after that? For the entire time that Jeffrey Katzenberg and uh, Michael Eisner were running Disney, Michael at the parent company and, and Jeffrey running the studio, I was under contract to them. I had one out to direct a a movie if it was my first, and my first one was Toy Soldiers, so that was outside. But the rest of the 10 years, I was under an exclusive contract to them. The Big Easy writes, even though I shared the the television rights with the producer, uh, the producer sold them anyway which wasn't discovered until a pilot was actually in the works. Oh, jeez. And so I was paid well because I had them over a barrel, but I was still disappointed. Because of my exclusivity to Disney, I couldn't be involved. So I got a credit, but I couldn't do anything on the show, which was really disappointing. I wanted to do that myself. Yeah, I bet. It wasn't necessarily the the happiest of experiences. No, the that producer, the late Steve Friedman, who's a uh, was a wonderful but crazy guy who passed away a number of years ago. He had actually pitched the idea of doing a, the Big Easy as a TV series to a couple of networks before, and I heard about it and called him and said, Steve. Talk to your lawyers. You can't do that. We own the the rights jointly. I don't want to do anything now because I I'm exclusive at Disney. I've got to do movies for for them. Let's do it together. And he said, Dan, who knew? And I swear to you, this will never happen again. I promise. So when I found out. The following year that the rights were sold, under the same circumstances, right, and they were, I naturally called him up and said, remember that conversation we had a year ago where you said, I promise I will never do this again? And he said, oh, Dan, but everybody know, in the business knows my word is shit. So I just had to laugh, you know, <laughs> just so funny. But that was Steve. When, uh, sorry, getting back to, to Beverly Hills Cop for a second here, when they decided to do a sequel uh, for this, were you even called at all on this one? I was in the same situation. I was exclusive by that time to Disney, and it was a Paramount property. I missed an, another really big opportunity of Paramount to work on a Star Trek movie, but then signed the the deal at Disney and couldn't do that either. In the case of Beverly Hills Cop 2 and certainly 3, I was not as happy with the concept of those. Katzenberg and I, in a conversation where you almost hate to have it because you feel like you might jinx it, were speculating about if the Beverly Hills Cop turned out to be a real success, what would the sequels be? And I believe this was more his idea than mine, but I'll claim co-authorship because I thought this was the better idea. 
was to follow Beverly Hills Cop with London Cop and then do Tokyo Cop. Because you can only be fish out of water really once. Beverly Hills wasn't the essential ingredient in Beverly Hills Cop, but an environment that the cop finds himself a stranger in, that's the essential element. So why would you bring him back to the same town? Never made sense to me. I wanted to ask you about one of your um, producing credits. How did you get involved in The Sixth Day? Well, Roger Spottiswood directed Shoot to Kill, which was the first movie that I was a writer slash producer on for Disney. And we became good friends. He, learning that I wanted to learn how to be a director, he would send me off with the, with the B camera unit. And, uh, he'd say, look, I'm going to be shooting with Sydney and Tom all day. There are five other actors here in wardrobe. And those scenes are not going to be in this movie uh, unless you shoot them. And I can give you one grip and uh, the 10 to 1 zoom and the whatever, whatever. And off I'd go. That was an amazing education. He came and rescued us on a picture called Turner Hooch with Tom Hanks and did a fantastic job on that. And again, it was a tremendously educational experience. So I loved collaborating with him. We did so frequently. So when an opportunity came up to work with him again on the sixth day, I jumped at it. It was an interesting mix of sci-fi and adventure that I just don't think really kind of got its due when it came out. It seemed almost lost in the shuffle. It did. There was a major, major mistake made with the distribution of that film. And I can't blame the distributor, Sony, for it because they, we were all in the room when they announced this and none of us said, wait, you're crazy. You're, you, you, cause the logic, it all seemed very logical to us at the time because these things are decided way in advance. And they had thought, uh, of the competitive movies that were going to be coming out at the time that the movie that would be the big hit that we should stay away from was an Adam Sandler movie. And I believe it was little Nikita was, is that one of his little Nikki? Yeah. Little Nikita is completely different, but little Nikki, but a movie that would not compete at all with our demographic, uh, was the Grinch with Jim Carrey. Well, of course, if we had come out the weekend that uh, Little Nicky opened, that movie proved to not do so well and not overlap with the demographics that would go for Arnold Schwarzenegger in a sci-fi movie. But everybody went to Grinch. It was a huge hit. It sucked up all of the oxygen, if you will, for that weekend. And so it left our our movie a little bit behind the eight ball because people didn't discover it. There wasn't as much word of mouth that, you know, all of that. So those things happen and it's 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 easy to blame the distributors. But as I say, they were going on the what they felt was the best information. And 
I certainly never looks dumb in retrospect, but it didn't seem dumb at the time. It seemed like a well-thought-out strategy. No, and especially because I think that was one of the first missteps of Adam Sandler, because I think the previous films, like The Waterboy oh, and some of those others, hits. were huge, yeah. Yeah. So, now I would have probably bet the same way. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about Enderby Entertainment? This is a new venture for a new departure for me, and I'm doing it thanks with and thanks to a partner. Rick Dugdale is a guy that I met on the sixth day when he was a production assistant and I was executive producer. He was all of 20 years old, but he had the title key production assistant. And we were working at the single most sensitive location in downtown Vancouver, the beautiful billion dollar Vancouver Public Library, the futuristic building that we needed for the headquarters of Tony Goldwyn's character's company. It just looks great, but it's also a very sensitive public building. We could only shoot in the actual library when the library was closed, and the plaza and the five levels of parking underneath had to be open 24-7. So Rick had a army. He had 80 people working for him so that all of that, all of the many, many entrances and exits could be covered and our circus up the street could be covered to, to keep it open to the public but somewhat controlled. He also was the senior guy from the production company on the set at night when we were shooting. And I was the only producer there because all my other producer colleagues, and there were many, were keeping office hours and all of Rick's bosses were keeping office hours and we were shooting nights. So he and I became thrown together and friends. And about two weeks in, I nudged Roger Spottiswood and said, see that kid over there? Someday we're all going to be working for him. And Dan's, Roger said, Dan, in this pitying tone, you're just figuring this out now? I've known that for two weeks. That actually came true. We're equal partners, but he's got the title CEO at my insistence, just because we couldn't be doing the financing aspect without him, because he's had really thoroughly learned physical production and all that, but neither of us had any idea about investment and financing and all of that, how you raise money. And he said, I, I think I could do that. I think I'd like to learn that. And he took some time off and uh, learned investment. He went to work uh, for people looking for public monies for investment into uranium mining and things like that to really thoroughly get grounded. And so we financed some movies starting with smaller titles that we've done, some with our uh, genre division, which was concentrating on horror-slash-thriller things when that was popular, and now it's coming back, so we'll do more now, and smaller indie movies, and then some larger indie movies, including a movie with Sir Anthony Hopkins, Julia Stiles, Ray Liotta, Alexander Ludwig, and Hal Holbrook called Blackway, which is available on 
iTunes and all of that. We announced one recently called Christmas at Rosemont that's a, a smaller movie, but it's actually got a heartwarming connection with uh, Beverly Hills Cop in kind of a backhanded way. After Beverly Hills Cop came out, I was at a reunion of my wife's family. Now, she comes from a very religious background, and so there are 35 people of all ages at this family reunion. And one day we we get back to the house of the patriarch, who is a, both a minister and a college president in this religious denomination. And all we see around the house, running around the house, are the little kids. So we say, hey, where's everybody? Oh, they're in grandpa's office. They're watching the dirty movie. They were watching Beverly Hills Cop as a, you know, but they excluded the kids. They, they, you know, this was a strict religion that didn't even want people watching movies, period, let alone R-rated ones. But out of, out of curiosity and politeness to me, they thought they should all see it. So I thought, okay, I'd love to do a movie that the whole family can see. And while I've done movies like that that are on television, Christmas at Rosemont that we announced has been released on uh, Amazon and iTunes and those other things too, is one of those family movies. So it only took me 30-some years to achieve that ambition. What are some of the other titles that you're working on presently? An Ordinary Man is a movie that was written and directed by Brad Silverling, who I think is an amazing talent, and stars Sir Ben Kingsley as the last of the veterans and accused war criminals of the wars of the former Yugoslavia. He's living in hiding, but hiding kind of in plain sight as the net closes around him and the U.S. is upped the reward to $10 million and the unnamed country that he lives in uh, knows that their potential membership in the European Union is on the line unless he's turned over. And as this net tightens, it's his relationship with this young lady who is shows up to be his maid, played by Helmar who is a wonderful Icelandic actress who's going to be a big star. And then we've got some things upcoming, but I better not talk about them. Maybe next time we, we speak, we can do that. That sounds good. Well, hey, thank you so much. You've given me over an hour of your time. I really appreciate how generous you were with this. And thank you so much for all of the, the great memories, and especially about Beverly Hills Cop. This was fantastic. Oh, super. You'll have... No trouble. Just snip out the pauses and it'll be 15 minutes before you know it. Next up, we are going to hear from Victor Maitland himself, Mr. Stephen Burkhoff. I know that your first love seems to be the theater more than television or films. Is that a pretty well, that's, the, that's the English way, you see. Because that's where you learn your craft and where you test yourself and where you develop your skills and where you learn about drama 
and where you get familiar with great playwrights. So, I mean, if you're an actor you take, if you're in, in England, you take it seriously almost as a reflex action. So you don't start to say, oh, I want to be in movies. You start by thinking, God, I want to... And one day you try to do Hamlet or Macbeth or almost Cyrano de Bergerac or something like that. That's how theatre is taken, you know, in England. How did you look at movies and television when you were coming up as an actor and working on the stage? You regarded it as something that not in your world. You didn't think of it as inferior. You just it wasn't in your world because you're studying at the art of acting. And you can't study the art of acting doing a, a little walk on a bits and pieces in TV or movies. So you wait until such a time where you gain more experience uh, in, in film and do larger and more demanding roles. And then you learn and learn to appreciate cinema. What was it like shooting some of these TV series back in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s, things like UFO or The Third Man? I mean, how was that experience for you? Uh, forgettable. <laughs> I know that some of your early roles also included working with uh, Stanley Kubrick on things like uh, Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon. What was yes. that experience like for you? Well, that was very interesting because uh, you watched how a great master was working. And that was, of course, fascinating to me and uh, very exciting because with someone like Kubrick, he's uh, what I would call a maestro of the cinema, and he encourages players, his players, to take an interest in what he's doing. So he shares the the problems with you. He shows you the sets. He shows you the camera angles he's going to use. Uh, he shares with you the de details of the shooting process. And so the, that's wonderful to work with. And also the subjects. I mean, he's not doing um, garbage. He's doing great subjects like Barry Lyndon, which is Thackeray, Clockwork Orange, of course, which is um, a major Anthony Burgess, major groundbreaking novel. So the kind of material he's doing is you, you can't help but be uh, involved. I think the first time I remember seeing you in something was in McVicker, and you really stood out in that. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. And then um, I was a big fan of yours in Outland as well. Oh, yes. Well, I only had a short scene, but I made the most of it. That was, um, for who, who directed that? Peter Hyams. Peter Hyams. Peter Hyams, yeah. Nice, lovely guy. Real gentleman. Um, but I didn't really want to talk to you about uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yes, I think yes. that was a lot of people's exposure. Well, obviously, Octopussy, I think, really, you know, that was a Bond film, so everybody's going to see that. But... Beverly Hills Cop, you were so delightful as Victor Maitland in that. Can you tell oh, me a little good. bit about your experience? Well, I just went up and met the director, Martin Brest, who already had a reputation, and he was a, a, a utterly civil and very pleasant man, charming to talk to. I even made a comment at the time saying Beverly Hills Cop was a bit of a simple title. Don't you need something with a bit more zest for the title and he said well everybody seems to like it well of course it worked he was right the simpler the better we got on well then he said i think you could do this role because they wanted a kind of a, a british villain in the art world to contrast with 
the other actors, all American. And then I met, at that time, Sylvester Stallone was doing it. So I met him. He was sitting behind a long desk with all the producers and all the staff and, and associate producers and assistant directors and costume people and casting people. And it was like a long desk. i never forget it. It was, he's in the middle and he's very friendly because it's also awkward to audition people or interview them, especially when you've got a whole bunch of staff watching and listening to your every word. But we spoke as if we were just the two of us in a room. And I had to say to him at the time, I had not that long ago seen Rocky. And there's always a risk that you sound as if you're ass-licking, you know. But I had to tell him just how much I uh, loved his film, Rocky, and the energy and the power of it and the kind of enthusiasm and I said, I saw it in New York with my wife, and the whole audience cheered at a certain moment in the film, and that's so rare in the cinema. Uh, so I was, I was taking a risk that he'd think I was, you know, flattering him to get the job. But he, he, was, he was genuinely pleased. And he said, oh, oh, that's great to hear that. And then we talked, and he said he likes British actors, and he said he's always been impressed by their voices. So, you know, the power of their voices, because they project in the theater. And I said, well, they get it because the pubs close early in England. So when they leave the theater at night, say 10.30, and the pubs close at 11, they have to rush into the pub, shouting, ordering their drink, and shouting, pint of bitter, please, and over the crowd. So uh, that's how they get there. So he laughed at that. He said, he said oh, uh, do you know, that's uh, another one of my illusions. The base of dust, something like that. So I think I got the job. How did it go down, as far as the uh, from your angle, as far as the switching out of Sylvester Stallone to Eddie Murphy? Well, I heard about it, and I thought, oh well, they're going to change my part because they have to change everything. They're going to change a few actors, but they didn't. They kept everybody. Well, I was pleased, and I thought, well, Eddie Murphy, he's good. So Martin Brest asked me to see the film he had just done called. 48 hours, and I saw him and I liked him. Now, I have done, as you do in theater, you do drama and you do comedy. And uh, I had done, just left Hingman, and I had done a quite a savage comedy. So I was up to speed in my comic, comic techniques. So I was very happy to work with him because he changed, he improvised. It didn't bother me in the least. So I got on well. Sometimes I improvise. And we, we, Eddie and I got on really well. I liked him. I loved his humor and I loved the way he attacked the scene. He, he was, for me, I, I loved him. Had you already started rehearsals by the time they kind of switched him out or was it? Oh, no, I, we hadn't done anything. No, no, no. All, all the old Martin Brett said to me is, look, Eddie likes to improvise. I hope that uh, you're okay with that. I said, Fire ahead. I love it. And I was fine. It's funny, though, that you, you're the ultimate straight man in that role. You, you can't really crack a smile very much at all. That's true. Yes, that's right. Because I'm watchful. I'm, a, I'm being on guard. Because I know I'm being um, sniffed out by a cop. And so 
I think that's the natural way of playing it. Also, it was due to Martin Bress, the director. Because whenever I did try to be a little bit flashy or exuberant, he would say, take it down, Steve. Down. You're the boss. All you have to do is put your finger on the button and your clowns, your, you know, your goons come in. You don't need anything. He kept saying, pull it back, pull it back. And God, he was so right. So I owe that to Martin Brest. You worked a lot with Jonathan Banks on that. And um, obviously, he's still working. He's actually kind of um, bigger than ever now with um, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. What was he like to work with? He was a delightful guy and very friendly and easy to get on with. And I'm amazed that, that he's been so successful. Because with all respect to him, I thought he was good. But I thought, well, he's just another actor who will carry on playing, you know, modest parts all his life. But suddenly he had guts and he'd gone on. So that's very good. Was it because of that Sylvester Stallone connection that you had made that you ended up being in Rambo First Blood Part Two? Absolutely. Because Stallone really thought that he could use me. I like to think that he found me interesting. And so even before I'd even got started with Beverly Hills Cop, he said, I'm going to book you for my next film, Rambo. So I went from one major hit to another, except the big difference is we didn't have Martin Brest. We had George Cosmatos, and he didn't have anything of the style, nothing of the style of Martin. And it wasn't quite such a happy experience. I didn't get myself together. I should have been. I should have taken it a lot more seriously. I should have trained hard. I should have looked tougher. I thought I did okay in it, but I think I could have been much, much better. How was it working with him as, say, compared with working with Prince, who was an actor-cum-musician? Eddie Murphy was already a born actor. Prince is a singer, and that's way in a different realm to acting. But comedy is already acting. So what he did, he just used the comedy for the acting. So he added an extra layer to it. So that made the film the biggest hit of the year because he was inventive. In other words, he was theatrical. So he didn't just go into that club and say, I want to see Victor Maitland. He says, and the, the man says, well, you can't. So he said, don't say, well, I'm a cop. Or he just says, he talks about having HIV or something. And it's the funniest thing on earth. So whatever he did, he added a twist to it. So, you know, I wish we could do a, a rerun and have me 40 years later and him and that big tomato didn't die when he was shot and fell down the stairs. They said that in order to get Axel Foley, because he's got too too obsessed with Maitland, out of town. And then Maitland makes a slow recovery, goes to prison for 25 years, comes out and starts his business all over again by trying to be cleverer than ever. So that's a real Beverly Hills Cop 1A. Well, they are supposedly doing the fourth one. Yeah, but they should do it with Maitland. It would be fantastic. But do a sequel with the same director, Martin Brest. Eddie Murphy, Maitland, didn't die, but he was healed. Then went to prison, did 25 years. He's out, 
And it starts at all. That would be the biggest hit of the century. You've played a lot of great villains, including the ultimate villain of Adolf Hitler. Yes. Do you enjoy playing the bad guy better than the good guy? Oh, well, you see, often the writing is better for the bad guy. Uh, the script writers are more inventive. Uh, they're more strident. They're more kind of determined to really make a villain. A good guy is like he just reacts. And they can be great parts, too. Don't, don't let us get it wrong. It's some of the great roles are the heroes, not the villains, which are people like Clint Eastwood and Zahn and many others and Kirk Douglas. But there's something about the villain which they give more dedication to and they're more complex because the villain often has to look like he's the good guy. So he's playing a dual role. So he's pretending to be a good guy and he's a bad guy. So it's like um, he's wearing his two-faced. You've got a project coming out called Shakespeare's Heroes and Villains, correct? I've just done a... uh, kind of documentary um, about the Shakespeare, because I put together a, a stage show called Shakespeare's Villains, because I wasn't getting work at the Royal Shakespeare Company, so I thought, well, sod them, I'll do my own Shakespeare. So I chose all the villains and put them together in one show, and then did a commentary between the villains to show their connection to each other which I thought was interesting. And I did that show in New York at the Public Theatre and Los Angeles and London and Edinburgh. I've done it um, all over the world. So I thought I'll try and put it on video. So we that's what we've done. They'll be coming out hopefully soon. I hope it's as, as good as the stage show, but there's nothing like the brilliance that you can hope to achieve in a live performance. I love doing it in New York. It was very exciting. Who's some of your favorite Shakespeare characters to play? Uh, Macbeth is probably my favorite because he is um, kind of poetic and yet dynamic. He's both aggressive and fearful. So he's very much more interesting analysis of a human being. And sometimes he's a bit of a philosopher, has certain speeches where he really reflects like the great speech at the end when he hears his wife has died and he says tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. It's an incredible beginning. It's almost like modern poetry. I read about your your performance of uh, Salome where you did it in slow motion. Can you tell me more about that? I tend to choose plays that have obsessed me, that I believe are great or have been neglected or are impossible or complicated and yet have some incredible power and rarely done. And Salome was one of them. And I thought the language was so beautiful. And I thought it has to be done very clearly. And then I saw, I studied mime in Paris with a great mime teacher, Jacques Lecoq. And we used to do scenes in slow motion to show and to reveal the inner workings of the body. It's amazing. It's like a class. You do it, and it's, and then suddenly it occurred to me, I saw some street performers do some scenes in Paris, and I thought, oh, yes, I'm going to do the whole play in slow motion. And it was magnificent. But there was nothing like it. Hypnotic. 
you sell a lot of the the stuff that you've done or or uh, recordings of the performances, and you've written a ton of stuff. You sell that all through your website, correct? Yes. I, well, sometimes I don't get work because you know sometimes you need a producer. I did produce a lot myself, toured myself, had help from the British Council. Um, but sometimes you need a theatre. If you can't get one, you know, I, I write. So I've written, I just keep writing and writing and writing. Then I started writing short stories, which I like. Then I write uh, memoirs or the productions. I wrote one called Richard II in Manhattan, because I did a production of Richard II. And I was very honest about it, candid about the acting, the conditions, the atmosphere, the uh, wonderful exhilaration of doing a 16th century play in 21st century America or 20th century America, New York. And that was exciting to do. I don't think um, it went down very well with the people at the public theater too much. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're working on these days? What I have done this year, again, this is one of my obsessions. I did a production of Eugene O'Neill's The Hairy Ape. I did that in Los Angeles. A tryout at the Odyssey, which is a brave, but small, but very good, what we call equity waiver theater. And that was one of the most exciting things I've ever done with a great cast. So I'm hoping to continue doing this. And I'm looking for another theater in America where who would house it for us. It's the best production of the hairy ape there's ever been. And it's one of America's greatest playwrights, Eugene O'Neill. So we'd love to have a theater in San Francisco, nor New York, because there's a lots of very, very good theaters in New York. And uh, if anybody's listening, get in touch. It was tough at first, and that through a lot of, we spent months just on the cast, couldn't find the actors who had that ballsiness, the guts to believe that they are soldiers of the theater. They just think, oh, well, it's something to do, you know, whilst I'm waiting to do some piece of TV garbage. But the actors we found were dedicated. I said, you have to give yourself to this play as if you're giving your life. That's what we do. Is if we're going to die, this is our last thing we're ever going to do. And that's what we did. One of the things I like about you is that you don't seem to take yourself too seriously, that you can be in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Strippers versus Werewolves within a year's time. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, I don't often want to do these things. But I have to earn the pennies because if I don't get Sunday if I don't get a big theater behind me, like years ago I might have had when Joe Papp was alive, someone like him. And if you don't have an ally like that, you have to find your own money. So sometimes I do stuff just because I want to put some pennies in my pocket. And also, I sometimes I have to lay out my own money to put a show on, which I had to when I had the old Vic, when I did my production of Messiah. Well, it seems like, yeah, it seems like that's kind of the right way to do it, to to take some of these jobs in order to fund what you really want to do. Well, then you're able to do it, not sit feeling so frustrated, trying to raise money. You say, you know, uh, F you, I'll do it myself. And that's a relief. It doesn't always work, but at least you're independent. Sometimes 
but rarely I get offered a job in the theater. That doesn't always work. You know, out of all the stuff that you've played over the years, what are some of your favorite roles? Well, I would say film or television is thought to be Hitler in warm remembrance, because that was for the great act director and producer Dan Curtis. God rest his soul. A wonderful man, and I loved him. Other than that, not much to shout about. Stage work, my performance of Herod in Oscar Wilde's Salome, I think that's one of my best. In my play Decadence, it's also one of my best. Um, and But also I'm a director, so I put the acting and directing together. So one of my best productions probably was Kafka's Metamorphosis, which I did, did in New York in a few years back. Uh, at the same time, I did Coriolanus. I like playing that. And I did it, first of all, with Christopher Walken, of course, in New York at the public. Don't have too many, because I've done so much stage. Some of the best work I've done is my one-man show called One Man, but I played in my adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe, The Telltale Heart, which I've also just put on film. And I did the one-man show in New York, um, which was very exciting, and, and I was lucky enough to have fantastic reviews for both. I did two one-man shows. They're amongst my best work. But film, I haven't been so lucky, but maybe the odd TV. I've had parts that have been not bad, and I've tried, but, but only not bad, because the way they shoot film, Jesus Christ, you you learn a huge speech, because I played Savonarola in the Borgias. And when you start a speech, then a camera cuts to the crowd, and then they look at the crowd, and then they come back to you for another line or two, then the camera goes to the cathedral and then the uh, pigeon having a shit or something. But they want to show where the money is in the setting. Look at our huge... So that's a bit frustrating. But that was fun to do the Borgias. Up next, we have Lieutenant Bogomil, Ronnie Cox. Where were you at in your career when Beverly Hills Cop came up for you? Because of Deliverance, playing the, the good moral one in that, and then my first television series was a show called Apple's Way, which was, you know, essentially a modern-day Waltons, a really sort of sweet family show. So because of that, up until Beverly Hills Cop, I had always played guys that were uh, Mr. Boy Scout nice guy. Beverly Hills Cop was in a way the first time that you know, because Bogomil, even though he is a nice guy and a good guy in the end, there, there's a, a bit of an edge to him. He's kind of uh, and so the, the, and and that then essentially sort of opened the door to playing roles like Robocop and Total Recall and, and where I got to go full on bad guy too. So it, it was it was a really good kind of transition time for me, uh, for my, for my, as my, my career. <laughs> How was it working with Martin Brest on that one? Oh, I love working with Marty. Uh, he's, you know, he's a really talented guy. Uh, you know, he can be a little prickly, uh, personally, I, 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 not with me personally, but I've seen him, I've seen him with, you know, that the, he could be kind of difficult to work with, uh, although I had only the best of relationship with him. 
you did so many of your scenes with with Eddie Murphy and Judge Reinhold and John Ashton. What was that chemistry like between the four of you guys? Yeah, it was it was really kind of magic. You know, I've I've ended up I've done three films with Eddie. I of course Cop One and Cop Two, but then I I did uh, I did that little film Imagine That uh, with with Eddie where I played his boss again. And so the four of us were. I mean, that was sort of a package deal uh, of of what made I think. Beverly Hills Cop work, and Judge and John were really good together, and and you know Beverly Hills Cop was was really in some ways Eddie's breakout movie. I mean he'd done that thing with Dudley Moore before that, uh, where he was in the tank. Uh, I can't remember the name of the Best Defense. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, he had done that, and of course he'd been on Saturday Night Live and stuff. But but the the show that really put him on the map was Beverly Hills Cop. And the hardest part of working with Eddie was remaining coherent when he was doing his close-ups and not and not spoiling his take by just giggling and falling down laughing. Uh, we'd do the coverage on the rest of us, and it was okay, but when the coverage was on Eddie, it was, it was pandemonium. <laughs> now, were you cast while Sylvester Stallone was still in the lead, or did you kind of come later? I was actually one of the last ones cast. That's what's so funny about that. Yeah, because Stallone, uh, you know, essentially he he wanted to, to to do his movie, which he ended up doing. <laughs> that that movie he did about the same time. That was his script for Beverly Hills Cop. Dan Petrie Jr., who wrote the screenplay, was actually. Uh, was my agent <laughs> at the time, uh, uh, but uh, but totally independently of him. I mean, he was one of the agents at ICM. Uh, he wasn't my particular agent. I sort of came to it late. And the funny thing about Beverly Hills Cop, that last scene in the in the film, which just shows you how important. Homework in films it becomes such an important thing because, as you know, sort of everything sort of kind of kind of comes together uh, there at the end when Bogomil tells the big lie to get them through that and kind of going through that 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 they had a he and Eddie especially had a really rocky beginning beginning relationship that that through the course of the movie then mellows and and changes into the uh, eventually telling that lie at the end well that scene at the end was the first scene I shot on the picture so talk about doing homework. I had to, you had to go through and, and really sort of invest myself in all of those ramifications of things we, that we go through through the film to get to that point at the end. So that, that was, that was really kind of a, a really, a real challenge acting wise is, is to get to that point. Which uh, here again mitigates for shooting. I don't know if you know this or not, but when we did Deliverance, we shot it in sequence. <laughs> and when you shoot a film in sequence, <laughs> those things are already baked in. 
you said that this movie opened up the door for you to play, you know, some much harder edge characters, but you were so busy in the mid eighties, like with things like Spencer and vision quest and uh, Hollywood vice squad and all these things. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 I, I someone said that there for, for a while, I, I, I was in every movie made there for a while. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, someone sent me and, and I, this sounds like bragging, but it, but it, it's true. Someone, sent me a thing that was listed on uh, on the internet somehow and this was in the m- mid 80s to the mid 90s uh, a 10 year period where they kept track of, of of the top 100 actors in the world and the way they kept score was was uh, they took the actor the actors that were in the films that made the most money that's how they kept score out of the top 100 actors for that 10-year period, I was number 49, just because I was in everything. I'm curious about Beverly Hills Cop 2, because I rewatched it again the other day, and you're not in the movie very much. No. Bogomil's getting shot is sort of the reason for Eddie's character coming back to L.A. And and so that sort of, so it was a little disappointing to me that I didn't really have that much to do. Although, you know, he's an important character, but a small character. And then and then when they sent me the script for, for Beverly Hills Cop 3, I made the mistake of reading it and said, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> when I was doing Imagine That, the producer, the, the, the executive producer on that had the right to Beverly Hills Cop 4, and they were trying to talk to me about Beverly Hills Cop 4. First of all, I don't like sequels to begin with. I mean, I did Beverly Hills Cop 2 reluctantly because I just don't like sequels. I, someone said this, and I, I saw a quote them, but, but, but it, it, it's, it's pretty much how I feel. Doing sequels is like putting on a wet bathing suit. Did you know that your character had a daughter when you went into Beverly Hills Cop 1? No. <laughs> of course not. They 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 made that. That's, that's you you the, the screenwriters make up all kinds of crap. <laughs> Do you have a few minutes? Can I ask you about uh, Total Recall? Of course. What was your experience like on that one? Because you, when you were on screen, it is just electrifying. I love working with Paul Verhoeven. Talk about a really volatile, volatile man. Uh, although here again, I've seen his volatility with other people and never with me. He and I had the, just the most wonderful working relationship, and 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 I'm forever grateful to Paul because he's the first guy that really gave me a chance to play a full-on bad guy. Uh, because since I had played all these super nice guys throughout my career. What happens when you play a character with, with sensitivity, especially back in those days uh, I- I here in Hollywood, sensitivity and gets equated with weak. And so if you play nice guys, Mr. Boy Scout, then somehow that, that, that's a sort of a, a weak character. And, and so I used to, it was, it was frustrating to me to being an athlete my whole life and, 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 and that I can do a lot of things that other guys can't do that I, that with a, if a, if a role had any balls, I sort of didn't get it because I was known as what they call out here a soft actor. 
And it was when Paul Verhoeven gave me the, especially in Robocop that first time, he saw something in there. And, and, and in a way, we trafficked in, in something because I had had such a, 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 a history of playing nice guys that you expect Jones to be nice. I mean, the, the audience sort of, and when he turns out to be bad, then he's really worse than anybody you've ever seen. <laughs> and, and and then as an extension of that, then we get to go to, to, to Total Recall. First of all, I love playing those bad guys. Playing the good guys, uh, I, I liken it to painting. Good guys, uh, we all know what what decisions a good guy is going to make. In painting, he gets three colors, red, white, and blue. The bad guy gets the entire palette. And so if you, you look at any movie, and the guy that's always making, is the most fascinating and making the most cho- the most interesting choices are the bad guys. You had so, such a um, wonderful dialogue in that film. I mean, the, the line about being home for in time for cornflakes still just resonates today. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. What was really funny about that, too, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I, I was doing a little minor film. I was doing the, the original version of Captain America. Well, we were shooting that at the same time, and we were shooting Captain America in, in Yugoslavia, and we were shooting Total Recall in Mexico City, and I was flying back and forth between the two sets, and I was playing the sweetest, nicest president of the United States in Captain America, and I was playing uh, the most horrible man in the universe, and, and, and so I sort of had to look down and see what I was wearing, to, to, but going back and forth between those two characters was was a, an interesting uh, acting feet too <laughs> so, so schizophrenic <laughs> it, it, it was and it's, it's one of the few times where I said I had a really great relationship with and I did I had a fabulous relationship with with Paul but I there was one one thing that, that he 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 acted really really mad at me one day because because I went down to to Mexico and shot a couple of scenes, the scenes where, where Cohagen is giving the press conference uh, there, they're just little minor scenes. I shot, I think I shot two, either two or three scenes, and then and then we're getting to the body of my work in, in another two or three or four weeks. So I did those scenes and came back, and, and then while I was back here, I went to Rob Botine, who was doing the, 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 those life masks for us, that they, for when our face blows up at the end, and all of that stuff, and, and because of that, they had to kind of really slick my hair back and, and do all that for those, and, and I took a picture of it, and I realized when I saw the picture of that, that that was really, because when I did the scenes with Cohagen before, I just like, like me, I realized that that was really the look for Cohagen. So I, I took that picture and I took it back to Mexico and I went to Paul and I said, Paul, I know we've already shot these scenes, but uh, look at this. And he threw down his, his, his clipboard and he said, I'm pissed off at you. And I said, yeah. I said, why? He said, because you make me shoot those scenes again. <laughs> <laughs> 
What was it like working with Arnold Schwarzenegger on that one? Arnold, Arnold was great. Arnold is a bit of a prankster, and will and will pick on people if if he senses a vulnerability, and that's an aspect of him that that's not so nice. But but I will say this for Arnold, he can take as good as he can give because one of the things that I sort of tested that those waters really early on, and and the way to get along with Arnold is not to give in to his bully because he will he will bully you if he can. I mean that's sort of how he tests the water, and in anyone that stands up to him and and gives him right back, then it works fine. And you worked a lot with Michael Ironside on that. How was he to work oh, with? Michael is great. What a good actor. What a really, really good, solid uh, actor. The fun, the fun of acting is reacting. And when you have something coming back at you, because that colors. However, they say you, you may know which lines are coming back at you, what words are coming back at you, but it's how it's colored. That colors how you say, how you say the things that back to them. Working with Michael was was fabulous. I guess it's a compliment that two of your biggest films have been remade over the last few years. But how do you see it? Seeing another Total Recall? Yes. Okay. I'm in total agreement. Uh, Yes. uh, They totally suck. Uh, And I don't know if you know this or not. You know that they're in the there's in the works now. There's RoboDoc, an English company. RoboCop has become as Beverly Hills Cop has has become a cult classic. I was I was voted recently the the, the number one villain in films. <laughs> I mean the Dick Jones uh, and along with uh, a lot well Dick Jones primarily but Cohagen was in there too. Those people they interviewed over 70 people that were involved in RoboCop. Everybody from 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 Paul Verhoeven to to Michael Newmeyer to 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 all of us, uh, you know, Peter Weller, Nancy Allen, me, uh, you know, Ray Weiss, uh, everybody that was involved, Rob Boutine, everybody. I'm I have high hopes that this is going to be a, a a really pretty good uh, thing. I, I, what I'm I have a friend of mine that that, that when it comes out he wants to set up a, a double feature of show RoboCop and then show the, the documentary right after it. I remember giving to these guys on uh, their Kickstarter and, and uh, talking to them and trying to hook them up with a couple interviews just because it, it does deserve that kind of treatment. And, and they were really good. They came out here to California. They set up a, a place. They got them a studio in Burbank, and 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 and, and I, they they really have done their homework. <laughs> they, they just sent me a little. They sent me a little. I say he's about twelve inches tall. Uh, uh, the thing of Robo of, of Dick Jones <laughs> from RoboCop. Was that your first action figure? Well, no, actually, I, here's the thing. When when we were actually shooting RoboCop. They made a, an action a, an action figure of me that was about two and a half feet tall. That was uh, it looked so much like me you couldn't. I mean, completely like me. The, how they made they I guess they got Rob Botine and somebody skin felt like my skin. They had the three piece suit. They had they had because see originally when they when they when they shot. Dick Jones and he goes out of the window at, at the end of the picture, 
originally they had models set up so that, that, that they were supposed to be 144 stories up, and they were going to have that the, they set up the shot so that this this character that looked uh, this little dummy that looked exactly like me came out, and he was going to flail all the way. They had the camera set set up down what was supposed to be halfway down, and and so my character falls into into a close up there and, and and then the camera swivels and takes him all the way down to the ground. Yeah, and it was going to be an incredible fantastic shot. The problem was the shot didn't work. So it it, it never made it in the film. But the thing was they gave me that dummy. And I had that dummy for years, and I'm so, I'm kicking myself that I didn't seal it in plastic or something, because, I mean, after all these years, it finally sort of deteriorated, and I had to get rid of it. But but I had a, a Latin lady that worked for me. She wouldn't even go in that room. She thought it was some kind of voodoo doll or something, because it, <laughs> it looked like me. <laughs> This was like the best little dummy you've ever seen in your life, and it was completely lifelike. Did you ever have a picture of you taken with it? I didn't. I didn't. I, I mean, I've made some really stupid decisions <laughs> about things like that. I don't know if I ever told you. I, I, I Obviously, I haven't. Uh, when, when I was doing Deliverance, after the movie was over, now the, the, the guitar I, that, I, that, was at, that was on screen in Deliverance, it was actually a cheap Epiphone because they weren't about to, they weren't about to have me go in the water and go down the river with, with a really good guitar. Now, the one on the soundtrack is a beautiful Martin, but the, but the one, the one on screen is a, is a cheap Epiphone. It was cheap back then. It's probably even cheaper now. So anyway, when the film was over, they gave me that guitar. So here, but this is the guitar that was in my first, and, and the dueling banjo scene was the first scene I ever shot on film, ever. And so they gave me this guitar, and it sat around, it's a piece of crap guitar, and it sat around my house for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that, and Pasadena Playhouse was having a, a, a fundraiser, and they needed, to, they were always strapped for cash, so I gave them that guitar, and they auctioned it off. I don't think they got very much for it, even at that. And, and then after they, after they auctioned it off, I've, I've been kicking myself all these years of saying, "Oh God, why did I do that? Why, why, why? I want that." And lo and behold, earlier this year, I was playing a, a show with my son, and a guy came to to my show. And he came up to me afterwards, and he had, and he said, "Do you recognize this?" And he had that guitar. He had been the guy. He had been the guy that bought it, and he gave it to me. He gave it back to me, and I now have that guitar. Yeah. Last time we talked, we talked about four years ago, actually, about RoboCop and a little bit about Captain America. And when we were talking before, you you were really doing a lot of shows, working on your music and everything. How's that coming along? Are you still playing a lot? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do more shows. I, I turn down about ninety percent of the movies and television shows I'm offered these days. I won't. I won't let any movie or television show interfere with any gig that. That uh, that I already have booked. Uh, I mean, it just means. I mean, I'm not rich, but I've had a really good career. Uh, the thing that gives me the most, and don't get me wrong, 
I love acting. I really do love acting. I just don't love it as much as the music. Uh, but having said that, I just I just got to do a television movie with Willie Nelson in which I got to sing one of my songs in the movie. That must have been something to work with Willie Nelson, too. Well, I, you know, I didn't really get to work with it. Here again, Willie Nelson, it's not a Willie Nelson movie. Willie Nelson was in the movie. He, he worked one day. I, I mean, and he's sort of the, what they hung the film on. So, so in terms of me getting to actually work with Willie, I didn't actually get to work with Willie. I mean, I was there for his concert and, and, and all that, but, but I didn't really get to work with Willie. <laughs> Well, that was great that you got to sing one of your own. Are, did you say your son is playing with you? My son used to be the leader of my band, uh, and he actually produced a couple of my early albums. But my son has a real job now, and he has a family. And, and so so he only gets to play with me when we're around town here. Most of the time, I, he, I, don't, I love it when I get to play with him. Because, see, he's, he's a graduate of Musicians Institute here, you know, BIT, PIT, GIT, you know, where they train all those studio musicians. And he, he interned at Hans Zimmer's studio. So we're talking about a guy that's, that's a, back in the day, my son John was a real player. And, and that's the thrill of getting, there's nothing better than playing music with your kids, especially when your kids are better musicians than you are. <laughs> now, is the best place for people who want to pick up your CDs, is that still RonnieCox.com? Yeah, go to RonnieCox.com and, and, and just click on Albums. And and you can listen to to to, to anything there, and and then and then and, 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 and I don't know if you know this or not. You know, I'm, since we talked, you know, I've written a book. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. Well, see, of all the films I've done, probably the one that that's that's more people want to talk about, and there are more myths and legends, most of them false, about is Deliverance. And so in 2012 was the 40th anniversary of us, of us making Deliverance. So I wrote a book on the making of Deliverance. And the critics were really nice. And, and, and uh, but the, the book was a little frustrating to me when it came out in print because I had always envisioned it as a book of stories. And so I went back. It's available in print. But but what even means more to me, I went back and 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 I did the book my, with me telling all the stories, and I did my best to make it not sound red. That 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 that, that it was just because I wanted to feel like you and I were sitting around the kitchen table having a beer or something, and I was just telling the stories uh, because because the, they are fascinating stories. I mean no. No film has been made like that before or since. We shot it in sequence. We did all of our own canoeing, all the stunts ourselves. That's us. Uh, I mean, it, it, and it's just, it, I mean, and there are more, I mean, the stories about the, who played the banjo and who didn't and, and things. I mean, there's just a thousand stories that most people have wrong. You can only get that by ordering it from me. You have to go to RonnieCox.com. And, and, and you can order that from me. Okay, cause, that, I mean, it's available on Amazon, I think, the, the print version, but, but the audio version is only available through me. Now we have Sergeant Taggart 
Mr. John Ashton. How did you decide to become an actor? Well, it happened in high school, actually. Uh, you know, I was a, pretty much a juvenile delinquent in high school, and I grew, I grew up back east and uh, played football, did all that stuff, and boxed and played hockey and did all that and hung around with a pretty bad crowd. And <laughs> they were all great guys, but, you know, I mean, uh, one day the director of my high school theater uh, group uh, asked me to be in a play, and I said, sure. So I did it and won Best Actor that year, actually. And then I got involved with the Hartford Stage Company in Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, I did a little two-line part on in a fellow at the Hartford Stage Company. And, you know, I was sitting in there at 2 o'clock in the morning in rehearsal and sitting out in the audience and thought to myself, you know, this is what I want to do. This just keeps me out of trouble and, you know, off the streets, and and I enjoyed it. And then I gave the advice to the undergraduate speech and uh, at my graduation. But that was 1966, and uh, the Vietnam War was going on. And, of course, the advice to the undergraduate speech is a funny speech. You give them all bad advice, you know. And everybody was laughing and stuff. And my brother happened to go over to Vietnam, and I just happened to look out at the audience laughing and all the crap that was going on in the world. And, and I said, you know, if I could take these people for a couple hours out of the crap that's going on in the world and bring them to another place, uh, that's my social work, because I was going to be a social worker at one point. I said, this is my social work. So I decided then, I said, this is what I'm going to do. And I went to college and studied theater in college and played football the first couple of years. And, but I couldn't play football and do the plays at the same time. So uh, I went to Summerstock in Cape Cod that summer of 68, did Summerstock there, applied at USC. Because I was going to a small college in Ohio at the time, and I thought, well, I could be the next to Lawrence Olivier. Who's going to know in Ohio, you know? So, not that I have anything against Ohio, but uh, so I applied to USC and the theater company and uh, at the school, and um, got accepted. But I, I was broke and I didn't have the money, so I called them and said, I'd love to go, but I don't have any money. So uh, they said, well, it's okay, you're accepted. So whenever you decide to come, so. I was married at the time. I was 19 years old, and well, actually, I was 20 then, and I had, I had a one-year, six-month-old baby then. We went from there to Chicago, and I worked on the freight docks in Chicago for a year, and got enough money and saved enough money to get to California, and got to California in a U-Haul trailer and a one-year-old baby, and there I was, you know, and uh, got a hotel room and looked for an apartment and went to school. So uh, nobody, I didn't have any relatives or anything helping me out. I didn't, I didn't know a soul when I got there. And I went, I went to to USC and got my degree in theater. And while I was doing that, I got uh, accepted at the USA Festival Theater Tour in Europe. And I did theater over in Germany and England and Scotland at the Edinburgh Arts Festival. And so my training was all stage, really, you know. And then I got back to L.A. and finished my degree and uh, got in a little theater group in Hollywood, the Company of Angels, and won the Drama Critics Circle Award in 73 for a play I did. And I was so proud of myself, you know. I, you know, here I came out there with nothing and got my degree in theater and I got a, won the Drama Critics Circle Award for a flea in her ear, which was a French farce by Fado And I was all excited and had an interview at Paramount, and I went there, and the guy said, well, what have you done? And I said, 
Well, I got my degree in theater from USC, and I just won the Drama Critics Circle Award for a play I did. And he says, well, everybody's got those. And I I was so discouraged. I looked at him and I said, what? You know, I worked my fanny off, you know, to get there. And uh, Anyway, so I just hung in there, you know, and just uh, kept plugging away. And that's that's uh, finally, I did a play in uh, 1981 with Ed Harris. Ed Harris and I did True West at the uh, South Coast Rep Theater in uh, Costa Mesa. And strangely enough, a New York casting director saw me in that. And called me in to audition for Beverly Hills Cop, and and uh, it took a New York casting director to see a play in Costa Mesa that Ed Harris and I did, and uh, and strangely enough, she called me in. She said, "You know, John, I just wanted to meet you. There's absolutely nothing in this movie for you, but uh, I loved you in True West. Uh, you and Ed were terrific, and blah blah blah. And of course, and, and by the way, Ed and I both won Drama Critics Awards for that too." She said, there's nothing in it for you. And I said, but she said, I just wanted to meet you. So, you know, three or four weeks later, I get another call and to go in for Beverly Hills Cop. And at that time, uh, Sylvester Stallone was doing it. So I went in and I read the same two pages, you know, one scene, the scene where I punch Eddie and all that. It was that one scene. Uh, um, and uh, didn't hear anything again for another four or five weeks. And they called me in again and I went and read again. <laughs> And uh, then Eddie was doing it. And then, uh, anyway, I had about four or five auditions for it. And finally, they were mixing and matching actors, and they happened to just, by chance, put Judge and I together to read together. And uh, Judge came up to me, and he said, hey, well, how do you like the script? I said, I don't know. I haven't read the script. All I've read is two pages. <laughs> so he said, you're kidding me. So he's, like, frantically trying to tell me the storyline and all that stuff. And they called us in, and I said, oh, the hell with it, Judge. Let's wing it. <laughs> so I went in and winged it with Judge and and uh, got the role. And they, they were originally looking for a very Beverly Hills looking, which I found out later, uh, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, good looking, Beverly Hills looking guy, you know, and they ended up with a with a with a beefy bald guy, you know. So <laughs> that's how that all came about. So uh, it was just, you know, and it, it was, the funny thing is, you know, I, I, you know, and that was 1980, what, 84, you know, and I got, I got to LA in 69 and of course I've been doing theater back East and, uh, you know, all this other stuff. And, and Judge and I went on uh, Good Morning America and Joan London said, well, not bad for your first time out, huh, John? You know, like I'm some lucky guy that just fell off the turnip truck or something. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I'm a 22-year overnight success. And she goes, oh, well, I know you've done other things, you know. <laughs> you were uh, tearing up the TV screen for a long time. They're doing a lot of uh, of guest spots on different uh, series. Oh, oh yeah, Columbo, Kojak, MASH. Uh, uh, I Actually, I was in the first season of Dallas. I did uh, six episodes for six episodes of Dallas. Uh, Willie Joe Gar, I played on that. And uh, that was fun. I had a good time with that. But yeah, I was doing Starsky and Hutch and, you know, all those 80s shows, you know, 70s shows, really. Uh, I did Kojak, I think, in 73 and Co and Colombo in 73. And, and I just got out of college, really. So I graduated in 73. So, yeah. So I was just plugging away, you know, bartending and paying my rent, you know, and, you know, doing these little TV things. And, of course, I was doing theater still at the same time. 
I did Nights of the White Magnolia at the Coronet Theater in 76, and we won Best Ensemble for that. And that, that play ran for nine months, and it was a pretty big hit in L.A. Uh, but, yeah, I was still doing theater and, you know, doing these little television shows and stuff, and just plug it away and got got a break with Beverly Hills Cop. But then after Beverly Hills Cop came out, I got offered all these cop roles, you know, and I just said, hey, you know, I just did that, and I'm a character actor. You know? I mean, I did Tennessee William and William Inge, and I've done all these plays, and, you know, I just kept getting offered these cop roles, and I said, hey, I've done that. I, I don't want to do that again, you know, and so... uh when Midnight Run came around, I mean, I just leaped at it, you know, because it was such a different character, you know, and I wanted to do that. And especially the work with Bobby was, was terrific, you know. So I jumped at that, and, and of course, you know, everybody in the world wanted to be in that. And, uh, you know, and I went in to read for Dorfler, there were, you know, 50 other guys in there. And I said, nobody's getting this for me. This is my role. <laughs> <laughs> and Marty, you know, directed uh Midnight Run, you know, who directed the first Beverly Hills Cop. And when I talked to him about it, and he said, yeah, well, you know, you got to read for it. I said, what do you mean I got to read for it? You know, you know, I mean, and he said, well, Bob wants to read with everybody. So, you know, that was it. And it was so funny because we're all waiting out in the hallway to go in and read with Bob, you know, and everybody was scared to death, you know, to go in and read with Bob, you know, and I couldn't wait, you know, I was just excited as hell to go in and read with Bob. So, and we, I went in there and just had a great time with him. And I found out later when I left that, you know, when I walked out of that audition that Bob looked at Marty and said, I want him. So, and, uh, Bob was a, Bob, Bob's kids were a fan of mine and he was a fan of mine from Beverly Hills Cop and stuff. So it all worked out good. What was Martin Brest like to work with as a director? The best, the best. I call him Marty Best. Not, not, not Marty Brest. I mean, he's, he's an actor's director. I mean, he, he does about four or five takes the way it is on paper, you know, so he, he's got that covered and then he'll do another 15 takes and just say, okay, we got it now, so let's just wing it and have some fun. And most of that stuff's in the movie, the stuff we wing, you know, so, uh, I mean, a lot of stuff in Beverly Hills Cop was not on paper. I mean, it was just, Marty would come over and say, okay, here, you guys just play with it and have fun, you know. An example of one time in the, in the script, it just said Taggart and Rose would wait in the car. And it was where uh, Judge and I are sitting out in the car looking up at the hotel window where Eddie's room is. And we're just sitting there. And so we do the first take and just look up in the window and take a sip of coffee and look up. And so we did four or five takes of that. And Marty goes, okay, we got that. Now you guys have some fun with it. So Judge happened to be reading a, a magazine in, in between takes, and he had it in the car with him. So he rolled the camera, and Judge started reading this magazine, and he said, wow, did you know by the time you're 50 years old, there's 12 pounds of undigested meat in your system? And, and I said, what are you telling me that for? What makes you think I have any interest in that at all? He said, well, you eat a lot of meat, you know. And, you know that, that was all ad-lib stuff, and it's in the movie, you know. And, and really... Taggart Rosewood's characters were really kind of minor characters in the original script, but they, but Marty just let us keep, you know, ad-libbing and doing stuff, and, and we built them into supporting characters, you know. All that stuff of getting over the wall and doing all that stuff, Marty just, Marty said, you guys just have a hard time getting over the wall, and, and believe me, the end of the wall was about 10 feet away, and I said, Marty, why don't we just go around the wall? And he goes, no, no, we just do something funny to get over the wall, and 
So we just, Judge and I just played with it and had fun with it. A lot of that stuff is, you know, just ad-lib stuff, and that's why Marty just let you do stuff like that, you know? And coming from the theater, you know, I mean, you, you work things out in rehearsals and stuff, to do your bits on stage, you know? And and Marty was terrific that way. He just he just let you be free with your character. And a lot of stuff in Midnight Run was ad-libbed, you know? That, that even though George Gallo wrote a great script for Midnight Run, we embellished on it. You know, Marty'd say, "Okay, we got it. Now just play with it and have fun." And he'd let you let you run with it. I, I just I love working with Marty, and I still keep in touch with him. He's a terrific director. And I can't believe that the character names uh, in Midnight Run—they should have gotten their own award. I mean, Marvin Dorfler and Alonzo Mosley are still two character names <laughs> that I think of all the time. <laughs> I know it. I know. Well, Dorfler's first name was uh, was. Uh, I can't remember, but it wasn't Marvin. It was something Dorfler. It wasn't Marvin. And Bobby came up with that. Bobby liked saying Marvin for some reason. And so we changed the name to Marvin Dorfler. I can't remember what the original character's name was, but uh, Bob, Bob liked saying Marvin. Hey, Marvin! You know? <laughs> yeah, that was fun. I mean, we had a lot of, a lot of good times, you know? And that was a fun movie. It took us six months traveling across country shooting it. And it was a tough shoot, you know, a lot of action and, and a lot of long days, but I mean, uh, it, it was worth it. It was it was one of the best experiences I've had. So you can't get a better cast than the folks that are in that movie. I mean, just Dennis Farina, Joey Pantoliano, Yafet Koto. I mean, everybody's firing on all cylinders in that one. Yeah, it was a great cast. Excuse me, I was lighting my cigar. Oh, it was a great cast, I and mean, we all got along great too. You know, and even like I say, it was a tough shoot because we started shooting in New York, literally. And worked our way across the country, just like the movie. So, uh, uh, so it was a tough shoot, but I mean, we, we, it was like family. It was great. I mean, we all got along great and went out to dinners and stuff. And, uh, you know, it was terrific. And we all, we still keep in touch. So it was like family. It was great. We had a great crew and a great script. And what can I say? It was, it was terrific. What was it like for you working with, uh, Eddie Murphy? I imagine he was one to improv quite a bit. Yeah, Eddie takes it upon himself to do that, you know, a lot of times. But uh, and and I remember in the second Beverly Hills uh, Cop, uh, we had a scene in the in the room where he does the kibbles and bits and you know, and uh, biddle and lutz and biddle and biddle and kips and does all that stuff. Well, that was all ad lib stuff. I mean, the original uh, that whole scene originally we we did it rehearsed it. Well, Tony Scott directed that one, but. But we, we rehearsed it a couple of times and it just wasn't working. And Eddie said, Hey, this ain't working. I'll be back in a couple of minutes. And he left and came back and came up with that whole Johnny Wishbone thing. And, you know, and, and we just played along with him, you know. A lot of times you got to learn to just step aside. Okay, Eddie, come up with something. Okay, go for it. Is it, is it still Beverly Hills Cop that people recognize you from when they see you on the street? Oh, most of the time. Oh, yeah. Ninety, you know, 80% of the time. Every now and then, somebody will go, Marvin! Hey, Marvin! You know, I get that every now and then. And then, strangely enough, I get the, uh, I know why this is on here, but some kind of, on some kind of wonderful, you know? I played Eric Stoltz's father in that, and, and uh, every now and then, somebody will yell, where's the freaking money, Keith? You know? <laughs> 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 but generally, it's Beverly Hills Cop, of course. It was huge. It was a huge movie. It was the number one R-rated movie of all time, you know, box office-wise. I know they, they came out with something about Hangover overtaking it or something like that. 
that that overtook the R-rated box office thing or whatever they do. I, I don't pay too much attention to that stuff. But I said, well, yeah, but you compare that two two thousand and twelve dollars to nineteen eighty four dollars. Forget about it. Not even close. So I'm proud of it. You know, it you know it bothered me for a while because I'm a character actor. You know. But then, you know, I kind of accepted it after a while, and I just said, you know what, because yeah, it kind of bugged me, so, you know, because I said, look, I do more than that, you know, this is a, you know. But then I thought, you know what, how many how many actors can really put their stamp on a character for forever? I said, so I got to be proud of that, you know. Not too many people can be known for the rest of their life to put that stamp on a character, you know. So uh, that's a that's an honor. So I, I take it at that now. And I'm getting a little older and a little mellower, so. <laughs> you were in one of uh, John Hughes's films. You know, I know that he wrote uh, some kind of wonderful, but uh, she's having a baby. One of his films that I just don't think gets enough notice, because I remember watching that when I was younger, and just that movie really stuck with me. That is a terrific film. She's having a baby, yeah. You know, actually, I shot those both at the same time. I shot some kind of wonderful, and she's having a baby at the same time. Well, Holly, uh, John wrote and produced some kind of wonderful, and Howie Deutsch directed it, and I was shooting that in L.A., and then John started shooting some kind of, uh, um, she's having a baby in Chicago, and he wanted me in that, and he was producing both of the movies, so I was flying back and forth from L.A. to Chicago working on both of the movies. So, I, you know, I'd be in Chicago, and then Howie would want me back in L.A., and, and I'd be in Chicago doing that. And I just say to John, you know, you're the boss, man. Where do you want me to go? <laughs> I'll stay here or fly back to L.A. What do you want me to do? And uh, But John's that way, you know. So uh, And then I, would, I did a little cameo for him in Curly Sue. He called me. and I was working on something. And he called me. He said, can you come into Chicago for a couple of days and do this cameo for me in Curly Sue? And so I did. I flew in for two days, shot one day, and flew back and finished whatever else I was shooting at the time. So, But John liked to do that. You know, I mean, I think Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, Kevin Baker, Bacon's got a little cameo right at the beginning where he beats Steve Martin out of a cab or something, you know. And so John likes to do that, you know, bring somebody in just to do a little cameo thing as a dad, you know. So it was fun. John was a great guy. I liked John, too. It's unfortunate what happened, but, you know, he, he was terrific. I loved John. Could you tell me, what was it like being in King Kong Lives? <laughs> oh, you got to bring that up, huh? <laughs> Is that the sore spot? Is that when you hang up? <laughs> oh, you know what? I'll tell you what. It was fun. We had a great time, you know, and uh, we shot that in, in Wilmington, uh, uh, Dino De Laurentiis' studios down in Wilmington, North Carolina, and, and Linda Hamilton and Brian Kerwin, and we had a blast doing it. I mean, the film didn't come out very good, but, you know, I mean, it was kind of a, you know, whatever but uh we had a blast doing it you know it was fun to do and i had a good time doing it but uh it, it was an it was an experience <laughs> working with working with the gorilla was an experience so you know you mentioned that you're on colombo and I, I know that you're not in that episode a whole lot but i i am curious because i'm a huge colombo fan what was it like working with uh peter falk on that Falk was great he was fantastic I I had a, a really not so fun experience on another show which I won't name, but I, it really discouraged. I was young at the time; I was twenty six or something, 
I was a young actor at the time, and, and I had an, an experience on another show, and I had just gotten into the kind of Hollywood thing, you know, and, and I, I, I had a bad experience, and, and I just kind of went, is that all there is? You know, I kind of that had a petty, uh, Lee, the Petty Lee song, is that all there is? <laughs> uh, kind of flashed in my head, you know, and I just kind of went, boy, you know. So I was really kind of discouraged with the whole Hollywood thing and, 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 you know, the whole business thing of it. And anyway, I got the job on Columbo and, and Peter was like fantastic. He was just, and I had, a, you know, I had the one, one or two little scenes, you know, with Peter. And so we shot the scene in the house by the fireplace and, um, and I, we were supposed to shoot it that day and I was set on the set all day long and he never got to it. And uh, so we were going to shoot it first thing the next morning. And everybody had left. Everybody had left. Uh, and the, there, so the sound stage was empty. And and Peter came over to me and he said, hey, you want to rehearse this uh, the scene tomorrow that we got to do? And I said, well, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so we, we, say, we stayed there for like 45 minutes just rehearsing and and he said, oh, yeah, good, you do that, and then I'll do that. I was like doing a little one-act play with him, you know, and, and we were by ourselves alone on the soundstage, and it was just, he just refreshed my whole concept of everything, you know, and I just went, wow, that was great, you know. And I, I finished shooting, and, and I'd never done this, and, and I had my script, and I went over, and I when I finished working, and I said, Peter, would you sign my script for me? And he said, why? You're a terrific actor. Who do you want me to sign your script for? <laughs> and I said, I have my own reasons, but I didn't tell him. I said, but I really appreciate it. So he signed my script. And I still have it. So, yeah, he he just uh, reinforced my whole reason to do what I do. You know, so, he was terrific. That is one of the classic episodes. I love that one so much. And Dick Van Dyke was in it, who was great. Now, are you um, exclusively working on uh, in movies, or are you kind of go back and forth between movies and theater still? I haven't done any theater in a while because there's nothing I really, you know, uh, nothing grabs me. Uh, but uh, I'm just working wherever I, you know. I just did a movie called Uncle John, which is on Netflix. You can get it on Netflix now. Uh, when I was on the festival circuit last year, where I did a little tiny little independent film. These two young guys from Chicago got my email address somehow and <laughs> and sent me an email with uh, the, the script attached to it and said, would you consider doing this? And uh, there were two young filmmakers out of Chicago, and uh, I read the script and loved it, and they wanted me to play Uncle John, and it was just such a neat little movie. And they had no money, and it was a little independent thing, And uh, but I loved the character, and it was like doing a play. And I worked, and then uh, they got a couple of really terrific actors. Uh, Alex Moffat, who's now on Saturday Night Live, uh, he played my nephew in it. And uh, Jenna Lang is in it, and she's a terrific young actress in, in, in L.A. And Ronnie Jean Blevins played my nemesis in it. And he's Ronnie's working all the time. He's a terrific young actor. And so I said, sure, I'll do it, you know, and I asked who else was in it, and there was no money involved, I mean, very little, you know, and they were shooting in Wisconsin, and I said, uh, okay, and I was going to fly, they were going to fly me into Madison to shoot it, and I said, you know what, I, I really, I think I'll drive, because I really wanted to just take my time, and so it took me three days to drive there, and I stopped along the way at these little cafes, and 
got a sense of the character and, and it was like doing a play for me, you know, and we got there and shot for a couple of weeks and the film came out and we, we brought it all over to festivals last year and won best film at a lot of the festivals. I won best actor at one of the festivals and it's a cool little suspense movie. It's, 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 we shot it in the farmland in Wisconsin and some of it shot in Chicago. But, and those two stories kind of, uh, intertwine after a while, but it's a great little movie and you can get it on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu now, I think, and stuff like that. But it's called Uncle John and it was like doing a play for me and I just absorbed myself in it and, and I loved it. I had a ball doing it and, uh, Stephen Pyatt and, uh, directed it and he's a young, good young filmmaker and, and I hope the best for him. And, Eric Crary was the uh, producer, and he actually had worked in Hollywood. He worked for uh, David Lynch, and uh, so uh, he's working now in Chicago. And uh, anyway, uh, David Lynch saw it and gave us a rave review and gave me a wonderful review, and uh, David Lynch loved it. <laughs> and uh, it's a cool little movie, so if you get a chance, uh, check it out. That's fantastic. Sounds like that really kind of charged you up, got your batteries uh, over. Yeah, again. you know, I mean, I, I I don't read stuff very often anymore that I really want to do. You know, I mean, I get sent scripts a lot, you know, and I just, I go, I don't know if I really want to do this, you know. And, but boy, I read that and I said, I got to do this. It's the same kind of feeling I had around when I read Dorfer. I said, I got to do this role. Nobody's taking this from me. So. You know, and uh, when I read Uncle John, I said, I got to do this. It's a, it's a different, it was different. It was like, like I say, it was like doing a play. It was just, uh, it was just the character. It was all about characters. There's no blow ups, no shootouts, no, it was just character driven show, you know. Last but not least, we have the composer of the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack, Mr. Harold Faltermeyer. How did you start in music, and specifically, how did you get involved working with Giorgio Moroder? It all started out in Munich. We worked in a studio in the east of Munich, and his studio, the famous Musicland studio, was a couple of miles up north. And keeping in mind that Munich is not a, a, a huge music city or was not a huge music city at that time, everybody knew from the from the other. It, sooner or later, he heard of my work and I heard of his work, obviously. And one of one of these evenings, he called and he he suggested a collaboration on a on a movie, which was uh, Midnight Express. And that's where I met him, and we started to work together. And this was the beginning of our of our business relationship. You um, helped produce some of the most recognizable songs that have really ever uh, hit the airwaves, especially thinking of some of those uh, uh, Donna Summer songs are just absolutely terrific. Thank you. Thank you. This all happened, um, especially if you, if you talk about hot stuff, the, the, the first, the first uh, song I wrote for Donna and apparently became her biggest hit. It actually was it, it was a mistake, or it, it happened by chance. Because first of all, I was hired to arrange and to 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 play the the the, the synthesizers and uh, do some engineering on that record. But I was not hired to 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 do compositional work. So problem was Neil Bogart came to, up to Giorgio and said, Giorgio, look, we are so successful with Donna. I want to try and give her another double album. And Giorgio Moroder turned around and said, but look, Neil, we don't have the songs. We just have 12 songs and you need the album, right? 
And he said, yeah, but you know, writing the songs is not my problem. It's your problem. So get somebody to write some songs. And the next day in the morning, I find myself in a studio with uh, my dear friend, Keith Forsey and then George's co-producer, Pete Bellotti. And we start writing hot stuff. And in the afternoon, we did the first demo and, and boom, we had a, we had a worldwide smash. How was it? Uh, working on the Midnight Express soundtrack and uh, specifically working on soundtracks and uh, um, overall, as far as what was that kind of work like for you? I was not trained to do sound to, to do soundtracks or to to do movie scores, and neither was Giorgio. And it all happened because Giorgio's huge name as a as a producer as a composer, and the fact that that Casablanca Records and Film was part of the production of Midnight Express. And so they asked Georgia to write the to write the, the the score, and to us it was like a, a a try and error. We didn't we didn't know how to sync the machines back then. How to, how we how we get a, a video in sync with a twenty four track. It was not in a, we didn't do it in a movies in a in a, a theater stage. We did it back in his studio in Munich. You know, so. It was all all a new playground, and um, obviously it worked. And it was a very very modern approach to to do a to do a score, and it earned Giorgio an Oscar, and it earned me a lot of reputation as a synthesist and arranger. So when did Hollywood come knocking and and asking you to start doing soundtracks for them? It actually happened when I did work with Giorgio um, on American Gigolo back in. I think it was the late late 80, 81. So that time I met Jerry Brockheimer and Jerry was, was at that time was a, was a young producer for Paramount and he was the producer of this movie. And we did work in the manner we always used to work. We worked very fast. We were able to change the sounds on the fly. Jerry Brockheimer was impressed of that kind of work. He must have remembered that because uh, two or three years later he called and said, look, we have a movie to do and we would like you to do the, the, the score. And, and silly me, I said, uh, yeah, Jerry, I would love to do it, but why didn't you ask Giorgio? And he said, well, if I would have asked Giorgio, I would have asked Giorgio. But we remember, <laughs> it was pretty silly, wasn't it? But he said, he said, um, you know, um, I saw you working and I saw you to, to solve things and to, and to uh, come up with solutions on the fly. And I think that's what we need for this movie because we have a we have some problems with it. We didn't know how we, we don't know where we're going with the music. And this was the, this was a, a really not very successful production. It was called Thief of Hearts with Stephen Bauer, and it was it didn't do well. But it was my first it was my first my first score I, I wrote solely by myself. And um, Jerry was was thrilled of my work. And during the process of Thief of Hearts. He approached me with the idea, uh, introducing me to Martin Brest, the director of Beverly Hills Cup, which was their next movie, and that's what they were working already. And uh, he said, "You got to meet Marty, and um, this is the, the way you work. Would uh, Marty would be thrilled?" So I got a, I got along with Marty very well. I showed him what I'm doing, and together we developed this this uh, iconic uh, uh, score and soundtrack for Beverly Hills Cup. Yeah, what was that working relationship like with him? Martin is or was not a musician. He was a he was a filmmaker, and he was a filmmaker with a, with a with a great hearing, with a, with great ears. So what he did, he was linking 
um, my music to his pockets. He he knew exactly what he wanted to have there, and we were experimenting. We were really, really on a on a very high intellectual level. We were experimenting with sounds, and which which sound works with a comedy, which doesn't work with a comedy, because back then to uh, to record a, a a comedy score without an orchestra was something absolutely new. It was not done before. Um, studio was nervous. Everybody was nervous. But Marty had a clear view of what he wanted to do. So he, he went for it, and it took us hours and hours and ages to to really get get through the first layouts and everything, and to convince everybody that this is the right way to go. But it was a great, great relationship, and um, I think that at the end, if I if I go back in retrospect and think about it. I have to say that Mart that Martin had a lot to do with the creation of the of the of the music. Even he was not a musician. Not only did you do the score for it, but as far as I know, you also worked on some of the songs, especially right. the Heat Is On. The Heat Is On. Well, we needed we needed a, a, obviously we needed a title song for the for the for the movie. What should we do? I was sitting again with my with my fellow friend uh, Keith Forsey. And we were trying and, and trying to compose, and, and um, we had this idea of, of the heat is on. And it, it actually, it came very easy. And we did a first demo, and we played it to 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 Martin Brest and to and to and to Brockheimer. And he and they 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 fell in love with this song from the from the from the very first minute. And it was it actually was so that the, that the demo we did was obviously so fitting well that Martin Brest said, I want to have this in the movie. And Brockheimer and Simpson said, well, you, you can't have that in the movie. This is a demo. But he said, it, it sounds so great. Why, why are we changing it? And, and then the two of them had to explain that they signed a big contract with MCA Records and, and Irving Azov, former president of MCA, paid a fortune to get the soundtrack rights. And Azov always said, I need, I need stars. I need hits. I don't, Need, uh, I don't, I don't settle for less. So we were looking for an artist, and it was Erwin Azov who came up with the idea, uh, uh, taking Glenn Fry on the board. So Glenn was at that time was was uh, starting his solo career, and he actually started his career as an as an actor. He was he was starring in a couple of episodes of um, uh, Miami Vice. So he was he was keen and he he liked the song. He came in and we and we had uh, to re-record it because it was too low for him. Uh, today you could just shift it, but that but back then you couldn't, so we had to re-record it. And um, we we had a smash hit with it. But but to but to be to 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 keep the truth, uh, Martin Brest kept on saying that the demo was the was for him was the better one, which then led to the to the idea. When I just did my my um, um, my best of Harold Faltermeyer record, which is just being released right now, I used the old demo, and we we did we did re 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 uh, mix our our old demo, and I really have to admit it sounds it sounds really great. It's a totally different thing, and you know, it's like you have this first drive when you when you compose, you have this inspiration, this this first inspiration, which is so powerful. And of course, the whole record, the, the demo is full of, of mistakes and, 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 and misses and uh, not finished lyrics, but it lives. It's really, it's hard driving and it's a great, it's a great record, you know. But of course, for the soundtrack, we had to take Glenn Fry and um, the history showed that we had a big, big hit. Well, speaking of big hits, I'm curious, when you first came up with Axel F, 
how did that feel and did you know that it was going to become what it became? Not at all. We, we, we were looking for a theme. And as a matter of fact, I had three suggestions written and demoed already. And nothing was really to the satisfactory of the producers. So I had another chance. I had to, I was, I was against the wall. I mean, maybe if, if I wouldn't have composed Axel F, I would have been fired. This was the last, this was, I, I think it was my last chance. And that I came up with the idea and I had this, this first, this, this, this first eight bars, the theme. And I demoed it and um, I got the boys in and I played it for them and everybody was looking and said, I don't know, I don't know, nobody knew. It was, it was, it was in an uncertainty stage. We, we, we didn't know and I didn't know. I, was, I said, well, if you don't like it, then you don't like it. The only guy who said, let me hear it again, I hear something, was Martin Brest again. I played him the tape again and he really listened closely at the end. He said to me, look, um, I think that this is a home run and this is what I actually wanted. It's great. It's brilliant. It's bouncy. It's fresh. It's new. I didn't, I, I haven't he heard anything like that before, which is, which is, an, which was another thing, which he proved right that because Axel F is a piece of melody not heard before, you know, and it's, it's not similar to anything. He was able to convince Brookheimer and Simpson that this is the, the melody we're going to go for. And I was in, I was in the, in the driver's seat again. I could, I could start to, to um, develop the theme, uh, compose a B section to it, a, a bridge and whatever. And then all of a sudden we had a score consisting of, of three little themes, but we didn't know that it was a, it, it could be a commercial success because um, the next hurdle was to convince uh, Erwin Azov that this is going to go on the soundtrack because he didn't want to have it. He said, I'm not, I'm not taking pieces of your score on the soundtrack. I paid too much money. I want to have hits and I want to have hits and only hits. Period. I was able to convince Bruckheimer and, the, and, and our publishing company because Paramount owns the publishing on that. You know, I said, guys, we have, we have this great, this great piece of music and, um, let's work all together that we get at least the, this theme on the, on the soundtrack. And at the end, Azov gave in and said, oh, "Okay, let let him have his theme, and I need it tomorrow, but uh, but let's let's have it." So so I was working to uh, to assemble a, a a three minute piece out of Axel F because Axel F was was never composed through like he would compose a song. It was just bits and pieces. So it was a it was a puzzle put together at the end. That's why Axel F actually has slightly different tempi um, in every section because it was fit to the to the movie and um, so I had to just edit it and, and put it together and mix it new and I had my little piece of, of instrumental on the record and then the next thing was it was not called Axelf in the first place it was called theme of Beverly Hills Cup and I found that extremely boring because everybody did it and way back in in, uh, in Europe we had this what we call Deutsche Welle Neue Deutsche Welle which was like a musical movement where, for example, Nina um, and, and all this guy, trio and, and those groups came out, Falco. And um, at that time, abbreviations of names was pretty common. We had an act in Germany, for example, which was called Hubert K, which is like an abbreviation of his last name. So I said, why not call it Axel F? And Bruckheimer said, what does this mean? I said, well, it's the, it's the abbreviation of Axel Foley. You just take the first, the first letter of the, of the surname and put the period on it, and then you have uh, a funny and very placative-looking uh, title. And it's, I remember Cherry saying, 
well, this might work in Germany. It never works in the States. And I proved them wrong. <laughs> I remember buying the 45 of that. And, and right. yeah, buying the 45 of a, of a theme song to a movie, you just didn't do it very often. You would buy the score for Star right. Wars or whatever, but right. not the 45, not to have a single from a soundtrack. Right. That was amazing. That was amazing. And actually, in the first place, it was not a single. It was the flip side of Petty LaBelle's, um, I guess, steer it up or something. Yeah? So, it, and, and the thing turned around. All of a sudden, they didn't play steer it up anymore in the clubs. They just flipped the, flipped the, 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 the 12 inch and all the DJs played it. And all of a sudden, we had, we had a radio hit. It, it, was, it was on the radio and, and DJs making extended versions out of it. And every club had his own version. Studio 50, 54 had, a, had an own version, uh, which they solely played in their club. And so this, this whole thing was like a big, big um, flame. It was a brush fire all through America. And I saw, I, I, at that time I was in New York, and I, I saw a little kid with a, with a ghetto blaster um, on, on, on Third Avenue. And he was just walking and, and listening to Axel F. And then he put down his ghetto blaster and he started to break dance. And I looked at the kid, and of course, obviously, he didn't know me. I just watched him, and all of a sudden, people were gathering, and uh, people were dancing. People started to dance and started to clap and having a good time. And at that time, I knew I have a big hit. Was that kind of the inspiration for the music video? No, not that. This, this was the this was the idea of of a, of, a, of a director. He was it's the same director who did who did the, the, the video for for the Heat Is On, and he had this idea of he had this idea of having me breaking in into the into a computer room and stealing and stealing tapes and, and stuff like that, you know, and, and reassembling it and, and having footage of the movie and all of a sudden ending up as part of the, of the, uh, of the movie, you know, dancing with, dancing with Eddie Murphy and, and the running with Eddie Murphy. We shot that obviously on a, on a blue screen. That was not the inspiration. We had, we had a, we had a brilliant dancer in, in, in the video as well. And she was, she was great. She, and she did, she did some, some stunning uh, moves but they didn't. They didn't have to do anything with with uh, what the kids did on the street. Did that help open any doors for you as far as future work? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, you get of course with a with a with an asset like that, you get offers from almost every movie uh, studio because they all all tried to get the same sound. And of course, um, comedies were shot on a daily basis. So I got I got a lot of I got a lot of offers. The first one was by by the way was Fletch. So this was a movie. I, I, I liked Chevy Chase a lot, so I did it, you know. But And then there were tons of other movies which I turned down because it was always another cop story, another another attempt uh, of an Eddie Murphy, and then there was a female Eddie Murphy, and whatever, you know. They always tried to, to do anything. But what everybody uh, uh, got drawn um, and attracted uh, at was the was the, the fact that that instrumentals all of a sudden were selling again, and this is of course a great thing. If just imagine you pay for the score, you get a, get a composer, and normally you just get the music, and all of a sudden, and publishing of course, and and all of a sudden you get the composer, you get the publishing, and you get the score, and you get a hit. So you are more or less refinancing um, a little bit of your movie, and with X left. It was such a big hit worldwide that it gave another push to the movie too. So the movie um, started to uh, to move up in box office again, and of course this is an attraction every every studio was dreaming of. Did they ever release a full your full soundtrack um, as an album? They never do that. You know what? I I tried to I tried to uh, to release that, and I tried to convince Paramount because there are, there are lots of labels on the market 
who are doing things like this to, to release the entire score of a movie. And um, Paramount never gave the permission to, to uh, release um, the score. I hear rumors that somebody is somebody is trying to, but this is all this is all rumors, and I, I hope it's gonna it's gonna go through because I'm getting so many requests on the website or on Facebook or whatever, um, with the question why the, why 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 didn't they never release the, the entire soundtrack? There are so many little snippets which are so attractive uh, attractive, and we want to we want to hear it, and why don't you do it, and 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 all these kind of things, and I always have to, to say, well, you know, I even have a a, a pre a pre written answer for things like that is because Paramount was was very stubborn to get to give permission for this especially for this score I don't know why but um I hope this will change someday someday I'm always impressed by the work that you did on the Running Man can you tell me about your experience of working on that one Running Man was an interesting project because the movie was finished and I guess they had one score written by somebody already so um obviously they didn't like it and I was approached to do the the movie, the the, the, the score for that. So I'm finding myself with uh, twelve reels of of uh, of footage, of, uh, of an absolutely totally edited um, film, and with no changes. Everybody left. I didn't meet the the, the director. I, I didn't meet the producers. Nothing. I was just by myself. And I was sitting in my studio at that time. I had the Munich studio just finished. And this was the first project I did over there. So I was, I could do whatever I wanted. I just, I just knew it has to be ominous. It has to be driving. It has to be dark. It has to be um, uh, very dangerous, you know? And so I started to just uh, wheel and wail. And um, the outcome was, was pretty good, I think. And I still get, I still get lots of clicks and lots of uh, comments of that score definitely holds up after all these years yeah thank you thank you yeah, i hear this a lot i hear this a lot a lot of a lot of times i'm curious you took a little bit of a break from uh working on soundtracks and uh i think it was to raise your son can you tell me um yeah. what did what other stuff that you did during that time well i'm, I'm i went back to germany for, for for two reasons first of all the first daughter was born and two years later the the twins were born so i made the decision i said you know what let me let me uh, let me go back. I want to raise the kids there where I was where I was grown up, uh, where I was growing up. And this was, I mean, you know, this is uh, if you would know where we where we live. This is like in the heart of Bavaria. That's where I was born, and that's where I I got my 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 source of power to to sustain and to and 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 to and and, and to work in the world. So I thought, well, it's not a bad thing for the kids. This was one thing, and the other thing was that the offers I got uh, in the in the late in the late eighties, like uh, like eighty nine, ninety or so, were always the same movies, you know. And nobody, I, I tried to get an animated movie, I tried to get a drama, I tried to get this, and my agent said, you know, it's, it's, they don't they don't call for that. That they they call you for action movies, and I said, you know, I I hate to to repeat myself all the time. And I'm putting myself into a, a one-way street, which I cannot make a turn anymore. And um, I'm not doing it. So I decided to to leave uh, the States for a while and uh, work out here. And the good thing what happened then, I guess I was back home for a couple of weeks and the Pet Shop Boys called. And we did a, we did a production together, which, which as of today still counts as one of their their major works and one of the of the 
the highest acclaimed um, albums of the critics of all times. And so this was the beginning of a of of a lot of work in, in in Germany. I worked with Chris Thompson from Manfred Mann. We did we did like a, a, a album for for the Wimbledon um, uh, tennis games, which became a big Euro hit. And I, then I got my first my my first animated movie uh, over here, which was a, a movie. Um, it's called Asterix in America. It's um, the two two figures from this French um, drawers. They're not so popular in the states, but here they are big. I did a couple of movies here, and then anyway, it was time to go back. One of the first uh, soundtracks that I know that you worked on was working on uh, the Cop Out soundtrack when you came back. That's right. Yeah, I got this offer from 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 uh, from Warner, and and uh, Kevin Smith obviously was a huge fan, and he said he he said I want to have I want to have the the sound of Fletch, and I said yeah, well, I I, I cannot just copy everything, but I can go as close as you want. But but then again, I said. Again, I'm not. I'm not. I wouldn't just do the same what I did back there. But he always insisted. Yeah, do it, please. I, I need exactly that. So we came to a compromise. I got a young kid um, who was a DJ in in Los Angeles, uh, Sam Spiegel. He's, he's the brother of of of, of uh, Spike Jones, and he's a he's a pretty pretty known DJ. And I got him on board to do all the beats and all the all the loops and the drum programming on 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 the on the on the music I wrote, and. With the aesthetics of the of the eighties of, of Fletch, with the sounds of Fletch, we, we we came up with a pretty with a pretty bouncy and modern score, and I I, I know and I, I remember Kevin Smith being in heaven. <laughs> you said that you've got a uh, great assists collection coming out. It's um it's already on on iTunes. You can you can download it already. And it's what I did. I did record a couple of my themes. I did re-record them actually. I did re-record XLF. I did re-record um, 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 the, the intro of Top Gun, which was never really recorded because the, when when you see it on YouTube, somebody loaded it uh, from a from a TV uh, screen or whatever, and it sounds terrible. So I said, why not just re-recording it with modern synthesizers? XLF is re-recorded. Running Man, by the way, is re-recorded the the, the intro. And um, I did I did do a, a version of of memories, which is which is the death scene of of Top Gun, and um, then we did then we put the two demos of of, uh, of uh, uh, the Heat Is On and Shakedown in its original keys and in the in the original instrumentation on it. Keith Force's uh, um, his voice was still on the on the tapes we we located. And um, uh, we just remixed it new, and uh, what else is on it? There's a there are two classics on it which I didn't touch. One is Donna Summer's uh, Hot Stuff, and um, another Euro hit we had with with El Coli Square Rooms it was a big big hit in France. And then there's Chris Thompson's uh, the, um, the Challenge on it, and I did a remix of Fire and Ice, which I wrote for a movie of Willy Borgner, uh, so-called Fire and Ice. And yeah, this completes the whole thing. And one track is on it, which is a, which is a funny situation that um, we have a big we had a big artist here in in Germany. His name was Udo Jürgens. Nobody really knows him in the states, but he was he was probably the the European Frank Sinatra. He had this this dream of of producing an album in the states, which I did with him in, in back in 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 the eight in the eighties, the early eighties. And um, we had a song. I had a song written for Donna Summer back then, which was called "Shouldn't It Be Love." And uh, Donna did the lyrics to that. And Udo said, I, w- "I would love to record this song." I said, "Yeah, well, why not? Go ahead, make my day." And we arranged it for Udo, and Donna changed the lyrics. 
for him and we recorded it uh, and this is the last bonus track on the album so we have a nice selection of of uh, 13 songs and it's doing pretty good and um i have a, a limited edition on vinyl uh, not on vinyl on 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 cd but i will have a limited edition on on vinyl pretty soon which we sell which we just sell uh, as a collector's item by a little web shop and yeah, so this is out and it's, it's, it's doing great. And my autobiography is on the market doing good. So we are busy. The, the, the autobiography um, should be in the, in the States next year. We're just negotiating the deal. And yes, so that's, that's, that's about it. And um, I'm continuing to, to work. And I found another fable, which I did as a kid, um, which is painting. And I just had my first exhibition in Hamburg in a big gallery and doing very well. So it's all, it's all I'm busy and I'm far from being a, a retired musician. back and we were talking about Beverly Hills Cop. Now I mentioned the crazy frog version of Axel F. Have you guys heard that? Unfortunately. <laughs> Have you seen the video? Unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's pretty goofy. And that's the one thing I didn't ask Harold Faltermeyer about and I think I will regret that to my grave that I didn't talk about crazy frog with him. And that was such a phenomenon too. Yeah, it was like, huge. That was that it was insanely big. Like I remember that being the first time I ever heard that, like ringtones were a thing because everyone had like the, the crazy frog axe left. And I'm just what what is this? Yeah, and I, I felt very old and I felt very much like, oh wow, the eighties are really, really dead and it, it bummed me out. Yeah. I must have lived out uh, been raised in a barn because I had no idea about Crazy Frog. Oh, you are in for a treat. I've got something to discover, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Just go out and start buying up the Kids Bops album, and you'll find that eventually. I was so surprised when I was looking for a copy of it, how many CDs it's on. It is every place. It was like 30 yeah. different CDs had Crazy Frog Axel F on it. There was a while in the early thousands where uh, that was that was everywhere around here, and I just I still don't know why. <laughs> and he tried to reclaim the magic, you know, as if Crazy Frog were a person. He tried to have a second song. Yeah, it just didn't really work out too well. Yeah. Yeah. Lightning did not strike twice for that crazy frog. But yeah, so we're talking a little bit about, you know, the characters that we enjoyed so much. So Inspector Todd, Jeffrey, you know, and, and having Detroit as this character. So we do get just a little bit of that at the beginning of Beverly Hills Cop 2. Now, Beverly Hills Cop 2 was directed by Tony Scott, R.I.P., and... I have to say that the tonal shift of Beverly Hills Cop 2 is, 
I mean, it, it, it's clearly indicative of Tony Scott's direction. I mean, it, it feels like what it was, which was a 1987 action film. I mean, the comedy is still kind of there, but not nearly what it was when it came to uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. I mean, Beverly Hills Cop 2 starts with a robbery, and we are introduced to the Brigitte Nielsen character, and she is part of this, uh, what, the alphabet killer or alphabet gang or whatever. The way that this plays out, and, and that is... It's very telling that that is the first scene that we have before we even get to Axel Foley. So that's really going to set the tone for the rest of the film. Now, I will say that I enjoyed Beverly Hills Cop 2 when it came out. I still enjoy it now. I rewatched it probably about a month ago. I still like it, though I just I don't like it nearly as much as the first one. And, it doesn't have the joy, the joy. Yeah, I think of the well. I mean, even Beverly Hills as a concept, like the first one, it's treated as a joke. The introduction to it is as a joke, and you kind of get to know it and you have fun with it. The introduction here is as this very sinister tone literally in a sequence that could have been in Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. Like the way the sky looks, the way it's shot. It's a totally different Beverly Hills. And 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 I feel like there's no joy of discovery in this movie. Like, I like it. Um, even watching it last night again, like back to back with the other, which I'd never done, it, you just realize the, the discovery of the characters getting to know each other and kind of falling in love with them. Well, now they're already old friends. And even though there's still some great chemistry, it, it's just a totally different. There isn't that journey you get in this film. You get the story. It's like a continuation of story more than anything. Yeah, it's um, it, it really is a. a I, I mean, I I enjoy it. I do just because I really I I enjoy seeing Foley and Taggart and Rosewood interact. And uh, yeah, but it's just it's not very fun. And comedy is def- definitely secondary to set pieces. I think in this movie, I know a lot of talk is done now about how like now big blockbusters made with we're going to have this big sequence and this big sequence and this big sequence. And I think this is an early example when when that was done. You know. And, uh, there's, there's not very many, like, fun one-liners in this movie. The only one that really pops to my head instantly is, uh, is when he, he, Axel first sees, uh, Bridget Nielsen. He's like, now that's a big bitch. And it's just like, it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's really kind of comedy was secondary and the relationships are almost secondary. And it seems it's much more interested in getting action beats going. And even the soundtrack feels secondary on this movie to me. So yeah, it was like director as star versus actor as star. Like, you know, there's no doubt that Marty Brist is not trying to be the star of the first film. Yeah. Absolutely. No point is he foregrounding the action as the star. And in this film, it's like, no, it's the tone and the way it looks is the, focus and eddie murphy's a major character but he's not the star in that way yeah i mean that was always my criticism of tony scott was he was very much more of a style over substance type of director i mean talk about beautiful beautiful scenes you know the 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 shots of bogomil when he's out and there's the oil pumps and all this kind of stuff i mean great great to look at fantastic But yeah, then but for the Bogomil is sacrificed for the story, and then all of a sudden we have Bogomil's daughter, who wasn't even mentioned in the first film. It's just like okay, well I really like Bogomil, but he's basically incapacitated through the rest of the film. And yeah, there are so many just those action moment cliches. I mean, okay, we had the semi tearing ass through Detroit in the first movie. What are we going to do in this one? Okay, we'll get a big fucking truck, and it'll tear ass through here and then we'll have a laugh line when chris rock shows up out of nowhere as the valet 
uh, yeah, okay. I mean, it, it works in a way. I laugh when Chris Rock talks about, you know, how much it gets for limos and cars and all this kind of stuff, but it's not nearly as effective to me as the first one. It's a yeah. really hollow film, I think. You're not emotionally connected to anything that's happening on screen this time around. You you like it because, you know, you're you you're familiar with these characters and you're remembering how much you love the first one. But th- this time around it's just it, it feels empty and you can enjoy it, but it's just it's just not the same and it should have I mean the franchise should have ended right there. <laughs> you know. Or it could have spun off with a Johnny Wishbone uh uh, alternate sequel. <laughs> Johnny Wishbone! <laughs> One of the great moments in cinema. Uh, but you, you mentioned Tony Scott, and I actually think there's a bigger thing that's happening here. Just Tony Scott, I think this is where Simpson Bruckheimer become what they become from then on. Like a big, 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 bigger explosion. I mean, it, it, before that, the first one doesn't feel like a what I grew up then thinking of Simpson Bruckheimer, but this movie is exactly that movie. I mean, what we then think of as bad boys and, you know, just all these franchises that are just sleek, fairly empty, but deliver on the action. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And I was surprised to see their names attached to the first one because it just, it doesn't feel like a Bruckheimer Simpson film, but yes, this one definitely does. And it's interesting that the eighties, when we look back at them, they were the era of the master producers, like these guys were, like Joel Silver was, and then the writers as kings. I mean, just the whole idea of, you know, spec scripts going for millions of dollars. Of course, I know it was the, you know, the, the rare occasion of these things happening, but you kept hearing the stories of bidding wars on scripts, and it was just like, wow, just the Hollywood excess when it came to these. Uh, I'm sure Larry Ferguson and, and um, I'm trying to remember who the other writer was on this one, uh, William Scarin, probably weren't getting a ton of money. It was probably all going to Simpson, Bruckheimer, Scott, and then Murphy, because the rest of it, it just, you know, it doesn't seem like um, they were really putting that much care into the, the characters in this one as, as much as they had been. To Chris's point, they're just kind of, you know who these guys are, just enjoy them again, and yeah, it's very, very hollow. The only effort they really, I mean, you know, they, they push Rosewood, he's he's crazier than he is the first time around, but even, even that, I feel some of those jokes just fall flat, and I feel like they kind of overdo it a little bit much, but uh, like... Foley and Taggart are pretty much unchanged, and you don't have the great, like, uh, on a feature ad on the Beverly Hills Cop DVD, Martin Brest talks about how one of the best things with uh, Taggart and Rosewood is how they're like a bickering couple, you know, and they, he points to the red meat discussion in the car. There really isn't, is, there, there's nothing as memorable about their relationship this time around, and, and that's unfortunate, you know, and, uh, it's just, it feels like a lot of missed opportunities here. They drop a clue that got me. That is really exciting. They drop a clue. One thing they do that I think is really original is uh, usually with these kind of sequels, next time Axel pops into town, it's like, oh, Axel, we haven't seen you since the last movie. And it's that kind of cliche. But in this, they they drop these photos showing that they've all been hanging out and having trips to Hawaii together, and they became real friends, which is so believable. Like, that yeah. is exactly what would have happened, because you can just tell the way they bonded. But then they don't capitalize that in the drama. Like, they put these photos together, and you're like, oh, that's a great thing to put between these movies and then they don't really cut to the shorthand that i feel like could have been even deeper and made it really funny it's it's a missed opportunity yeah even had they said like hey remember that time and so and so when we talked about this and like use that as like a way that they're going to get out of a situation 
you know? Like, yeah. That's hey, remember when we were on that fishing trip and you talked about that time, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But no, because, yeah, it's great. I mean, they're they're planning on having a fishing trip at the beginning. And, and that's what uh, Bogomil is very excited about. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, for Axel to call and uh, talk to Bogomil's daughter, know who she is, have a personal relationship with her. Yeah, that's great. And I love the idea. I would love to see uh, the Rogue One of uh, Beverly Hills Cop movies where we're, we're going between one and two, you know. <laughs> Them in Hawaii. It's a Hawaiian adventure. <laughs> <laughs> With a guest cameo of the clumps. This is something else that I don't say very often because I, I have made this joke before that if you bought a uh, Best of Bob Seger CD, that would actually be blank. But I actually enjoyed <laughs> Shakedown quite a bit and i thought that was a good way to open up the movie and again give you that detroit flavor and everything i think it was actually even nominated for an academy award and a golden globe i mean it's a really good song which is again surprising coming from bob seeker but it would uh, and i know people in detroit are just hating me for saying that but (laughs) hey what you gonna do um but again a really good way to start off the movie and then it just kind of peters out from there by the time we're meeting uh hugh hefner i was just like uh this is really kind of uh not working for me yeah yeah, it becomes kind of silly. It becomes kind of as empty as the thing it's saying is empty, Beverly Hills, which is a shame. But I have to say that um, Beverly Hills Cop 2 is almost like Citizen Kane compared to Beverly Hills Cop 3. Oh, my God. The sacrifices I made for this this particular episode, I had stayed away from Beverly Hills Cop 3 until just the other night when I finally sat down to watch it because I had heard nothing good about that movie. Well, in part one, the chase scene in Detroit always reminds me of the chase scene uh, of some of the driving carnage from Blues Brothers. So the connection to John Landis, you know, on paper, this would seem like a great fit because, you know, Landis's work with Murphy is just incredible. I think Coming to America is one of the other great American comedies, you know. But man, this thing just, I don't know. It just, everything feels so fake about it too. Like everything in the, the faux Disneyland. Uh, space is just terrible. It just feels so cheap. I mean, like I said at the earlier, the whole idea of them shooting that warehouse scene just feels like backlot. The whole movie feels like backlot when it's not in the faux Disney world. It's just like, okay. And then the faux Disney world feels so fakey too. And then even then, I, I guess it's more like faux Universal Studio ride because there's one part where I'm just like, I have been on this ride at Universal Studios in Florida, and it is either it's the Earthquake ride or it's the King Kong. I couldn't remember which, or they might just redress them for one or the other. But the moment when that they are watching when Axel is down underneath the park and he's watching one of the rides happening, I mean, that's just a Universal ride. So it just feels like there is such little care and budget even put into this thing. It was too much time had passed was the was the first problem, I think. Mm-hmm. And the second was they never had a filmable script. Uh, you're jettisoning beloved characters, and just nothing about this movie is, is memorable. I mean, the most memorable thing about this movie is George Lucas's awkward line delivery during his <laughs> cameo. That's, you know, and the fact that no one got killed on set, which is always a blessing. <laughs> Um, that was a great, that was actually a pretty funny cameo. I must say, it stopped me dead in my tracks. I wasn't expecting when I saw it. It really made me laugh. He's wearing, isn't he wearing a really funny, like, Christmas sweater? 
with a reindeer or something. Yeah, I just was listening to the words coming out of his mouth. I, mean, <laughs> just, I was like, boy, as, a, as an actor, he's a really good director. Hey! That's not fair. Maintenance, I gotta go read the chain. Yeah, dry sound. Sorry. Come on, let's go. It's it's utterly forgettable. I mean, I've only seen it once. Uh, you're a better man than I am because I couldn't revisit it for for this. It was depressing, you know. Like Taggart's not even there. Rosewood is sidelined. There's nothing happening in this movie, and I, it feels like anyone could have been. They could have thrown any character, any generic character, into this movie. It it's not an Axel Foley film at all. It, there's no relation to that Axel Foley to the two you've seen previously. I think we need to get Eddie Murphy, his Axel Foley Logan send-off with this character made. <laughs> if they're going to make another one, which I see on IMDb, it says part four this year, uh, which is very scary, but if they're going to go that way, I would love to see them go real and really just let the character be a fully fleshed thing. It would be really fun if they were I got that. an idea. Like Just like Logan... And just like what Sylvester Stallone has been doing with Creed and John Rambo, just call it Axel. And that's yeah. it. And he's that's a Beverly it. Hills cop now who has to go back to Detroit because something happens. <laughs> Let's pitch that. <laughs> we still have some tax breaks, not nearly as much as we did. But, yeah, it'd be great to have him back. Get fucking Paul Reiser back. I mean, it's a rare movie that makes me miss Paul Reiser. Where's Jeffrey at the beginning <laughs> Paul of the film? Paul Reiser could be the top cop now there. He yeah. The, the whole thing, the chief of police. He used to be a total fuck-up. He crashed the Ferrari and everything, but no, now he's on top of the world. If they did that, though, Axel Foley would have to run into that same criminal who's been in both the other films. <laughs> Every time he hey, I know you. <laughs> I'm a businessman. It's a shame because I love John Saxon. I love Hector Elizondo, but they're just kind of wasted in this film. Yeah. At one point, I thought Hector Elizondo was a bad guy. I was like, wait, is he working for John Saxon's people? And then I was like, no, no, this is just bad writing. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a shame. I think by then, it, this film also is irrelevant because it's already spawned so many part, but from part two i think more than even part one has spawned so many imitators and other franchises that became popular like lethal weapon that by the time you watch up to three it's just it's become irrelevant first one was 84 second one's 87 and now this one's 94 so i mean i i know some sequels take a long time to get together but i imagine it was just dickering going on and then yeah you're losing john ashton you're losing ronnie cox i mean so many of the characters oh no basically you got billy and you got serge coming back and that bronson pincho is the highlight of this film is really telling you that something is wrong <laughs> Yeah, and Eddie Murphy was not the star in '94 that he was in '87 either. No. So, like, it was it was kind of like a last, like a like a desperate attempt to try to you know bring him back into mainstream success, and it just it it failed on every level. And you would think with Landis having been able to direct some really good comedies and some really good, I would say, I would consider Blues Brothers to be kind of an action comedy. I mean, yes, the the chase scenes in that are absolutely phenomenal. You would think he would have done a little bit more with this, but instead it just feels like he was on autopilot. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes you just can't overcome a script, you know? Mm -hmm. What can you really do if the script, if the script is dead on arrival? I, I, I don't know enough about the backstory behind how that script came to be, the problems Landis had with that. I would like to hear more about that. Well, wouldn't you know, I actually talked to screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza about 
the making of Beverly Hills Cop 3. So let's go ahead. We're going to take another special, hey, what did you know, kind of break. And we're going to play an interview with Stephen E. D'Souza, part of the interview that I did with him for Running Man, which will be playing later on this year. So let's go ahead and play that back right now. Well, that movie was in development forever. What happened on that picture was Eddie Murphy specifically asked for me to write that movie, 48 Hours. And Joel Silver was going to produce it. So we met with Eddie, and we said, okay, you want to do something that's distinctively California. What if we like tear Disneyland a new asshole? Because Disneyland has its own police force, and Disneyland is a front for a criminal thing. Everybody signs off on this thing, and this was right after the Universal City Walk was made which was this, like, where people could come to California and never see real L.A., just go up to the University Walk, and there's a pretend beach, there's a pretend Hollywood. You know, it's, it's a crazy thing. So that was what it originally was developed. The idea was, the opening scene was Eddie busts a, a counterfeiting ring. He goes in, we got this counterfeit, he goes in, and they're making counterfeit purses. And he has a big fight with everybody, and he rescues Naomi Campbell, who's a hostage. And then he wakes up. <laughs> He's on an airplane, he's taking his niece to Disneyland, and he goes to Disneyland with his niece, and something weird happens. A guy is, like, terrified, right, running away. It was going to be, again, like, they always steal from Hitchcock. It was like the man who knew knew too much, right? A guy runs into him and whispers something to him and drops dead. And then as the the Disneyland police come and they move the body, and and now he gets into it. And our fake Disneyland was... A really snarky. If you know, like Carl Gasson wrote that book, like uh, Mickey Rat, there's books about like the, you know, about like the real thing. Is a real Disneyland in Florida. The, the security guards there have, like kill people and they cover it up. You know, like they 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 police themselves. People get injured on rides. They you know, in, in, particularly in Florida, like it's like it's like a third world nation. What Disneyland is is there? The cloud they have there. Like somebody once they thought somebody tried to sneak in the line and they chased them out of the, out of the park. With their police, with their Disneyland police cars, they ran off the road. Somebody was killed or paralyzed or something. There's all these stories. So we said, let's do that. So it, it, it was funny, but it was very dark. And the theme park in the script I wrote, the original script, was called like America Land, right? So it was all like history. And the climax of the movie was the bad guys chased him into one of these interior rides, which was called Dixieland. And he's in the antebellum South with like Kentucky colonels and mechanical Confederate soldiers. It was incredibly bold and daring, and Eddie was like over the moon over it. We were making the movie, and while, after I turn in the script, Eddie Murphy makes a movie called, and also Eddie has, a, 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 when he goes to the park, he meets a young girl, and he has, and he has a, like a romance with her, a girl who works at Disneyland. Uh, and everybody called uh, uh, the guy at the park Uncle Dave, and she turns out he's actually Uncle Dave's niece. Oh, no, he's actually my uncle, uncle. That's another story I'll get to in a minute. Anyway, so after I prepared the script, everybody's all in the room. We're going to make the movie. We have a start date. And he had a movie come out, which was called Distinguished Gentleman. And in it, he's like a, some kind of like con artist crook who by accident has the same name as a candidate for Congress who dropped dead. And he gets elected. And then discovers in the course of the movie that like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, that he has to like do the right thing and actually does important things in Congress. And his cause is the cell phone towers of kids' leukemia. That's the plot of the movie. So this is the with ball kids in this movie. So the movie tanks, maybe because it's the premise is like a conspiracy theory. They decide the movie tank because kids take out the niece. Do another draft, take out the niece. Now we do another draft, but the progress is so slow in development that Eddie has another movie come out, Boomerang, which is a romantic comedy that flops. 
So now they say take out the romance, right? So the movie is starts to start. You know how you, they say that Michelangelo would look at a block of granite and carve away anything that looked like a statue. Here we're carving away anything that looks like a previous movie, but not the statue we're trying to make. Now, because of those two failures, the budget of the movie is slashed. Joel Silver says, I can't make this movie at this price. So now he's gone. They put two producers who have a deal on the lot on the picture, who bring the picture, cost the picture down even further. The last thing Joel did was arrange for a reapprochement between John Landis and Eddie, who had had a big fight on coming to America. John Landis came back in. So now the budget is slashed, and the theme park no longer has a theme. The theme park is footage from some crappy amusement park, generic amusement park with Ferris wheels that Paramount owns somewhere in Washington or, or, or Oregon, plus Universal Studio locations that they asked me to reinvent. So uh, I can't get off this picture. Eddie loves me. The student Paramount loves me. Uh, who's the head of Paramount there? She, she was the only high-powered female executive in Hollywood. They love me, and I'm done. I, I go to raft, the second raft to polish. They make another deal with me. Once you you got to change the theme park. It's a lot of work. At the same time, at that moment is when they wanted me to do uh, Die Hard 3. For Die Hard 3. They are trying to hire me for Die Hard 3, and John Landis says, I'm not my writer go. I have all kinds of stuff I want you to do, Steve, besides change the theme park rides to the real rides we have. i got big, big ideas. I'm not letting them go. So they, they won't let me go. So Die Hard 3. So instead of they did that script, they recycled Miss Simon Says. It wouldn't have been an old different thing. Uh, so I'm trapped in this movie. It's like, you know, they say, we get all this movie. So now I go, so uh, I go to Universal Studios and I go, okay, the earthquake ride, I'll call that alien attack. And all the things that happen on the earthquake ride could be because the aliens are attacked. So finally, they make a deal for me, throw money at me, you want a whole new pass. They won't let me do Die Hard 3. I go in to see John Landis, and he says, okay, here's my notes. And the notes are nothing. And I realized his ego was on the line. He did not want to let me go because somebody else wanted me. And his note for this big, big draft I do that they pay me for a whole draft is I want you to rename all the characters from the park. So I had Virginia Ham was the big character. He says, now it's Priscilla I ask you and your audience right now, which is better for a cartoon pig, Virginia Ham or Priscilla Pig, right? So this is what I do. I end up doing this minor tinkering, right? That's all I did. And then the craziest thing here, they say at the last minute, the only hangover to try before is she says, he's really my uncle. And they say, she, he can't be. By the way, they sent the script, the script, the original script that was really carrying Disney in the asshole, we sent to Dick Van Dyke. And he said, this is an insult to the greatest man I ever worked with. I will never do this movie. Like, he, like he got it. You know what I mean? He got it. So anyway, we had, uh, what's his name from, um, um, from the Talking Horse show? Wilbur from Mr. Ed. Was our Walt Disney character. So anyway, they say she, he can't be her uncle because he's white and she's black. How could a white person have a, have a great niece who's black? I go, are you serious? Understand, like, you know, you are related to, you, you, your people you call uncle and aunt, you're only related to one, right? And this is two generations away. I'm related to Bob Marley, seriously. But my father's second cousin is married to Bob Marley's cousin. So, uh, anyway, but like, I actually do, it's too complicated, the audience will start thinking about it in the fall of the movie, so they took that out. Anyway, uh, I, I, the big rewrite I had to do, I'm just making up the names uh, of the characters, 
and I go off to make Street Fighter. While I'm in Australia, John Landis has five other writers gang-ganging the script. At the same time, it's a thing in Hollywood sometimes. You have five people rewrite it, and then you, then you shuffle the pages. The last draft, they're supposed to be in the writer's guild. They have to show you the movie before they put the credits on, so if you hate it, you can use a pseudonym. They send me the letter, we can run the movie for you here, but I'm in Australia. But the last version of the script they sent me is before the gangbang. So I think I'm okay, I'm not going to do the pseudonym. So the five writers all gangbanged it enough, but none of them did it enough to get credit, which they all tried to do. Very few people have. Jeff Stewart and I know we did. We flipped the coin to see whose, whose name would go first. And it gets better. Uh, he was out of town. And I said, flip a coin. He says, what, you know, I'm not in L.A. I said, I trust you. Flip a coin. Right? He said, hey, okay, fine. Your name goes first. I probably, counting television credits, I probably had, I probably had like, shared credits with people I never was in the room with, just worked on it before. And after maybe, you know, 15 times, every single time, uh, it's a, it, you know, insane, delusional battle. I've done so many rewrites where I know right away I'm happy to contribute, I'm happy to help. There's no way I'm over the threshold to get screen credit, which is a third of the screenplay, right? But most people just like to hang on. So all five of these writers try to get credit, but if they, they rewrote the entire movie, but each of them did 20%. So my name is on the movie. And I've never played this, but I had another little low, super low-budget movie that uh, I did where um, it was a TV movie. It was the first TV movie I wrote. And one day I'm looking in the trades, and I see an ad with really bad artwork. Like, I could do better. I was the art editor of my college-like magazine. And it says, writer of Die Hard and, and Commando. And I go, what the hell is this movie? I never heard of it. And after, like, a, you know, four hours of phone calls, it turns out to be a TV movie script I'd written years earlier that had been sold from one person to another, and now this producer had made it as a theatrical movie. So I go, okay. So uh, they run the movie for me if they have to. And I go, yeah, you know, it's not that, it's not that bad. You know, it's kind of a little thriller. So I say, I'll, I'll get my production bonus. This is a TV movie, and it was a rewrite that I'd done early in my career before any of these movies. Even before I was a TV producer, this is when I was a story editor, is how, how old it was. And it, the script said, if the, if the, if the, if the picture's made, I'd get a... There's only a production bonus. You're about these big prices for movies, but actually, unless the camera's in one day, you don't get that last check. So I said, on my production bonus, it was like $5,000 because old script. And the student says, I don't have to give it to you. What are you talking about? He says, the contract says if the TV movie is produced, but I made it theatrical, so I don't have to give you $5,000. He doesn't say that to my people. So I call up the writers' guild. They say, you know, the guy's got you there. But thanks to you, we're changing our boilerplate. No one else will ever get fucked like this. From now on, it will, if it's produced in any manner whatsoever, uh, in any medium known now or ever, which is a lot of dialogue I ended up putting in uh, The Running Man when his court-appointed uh, theatrical attorney walks him on the death row. Uh, so I can, like, the hell with this guy, I'm using a pseudonym. So I put a pseudonym on the movie, and it, and it got good reviews. So like he can't win. The thing that I was very, well, I had heard stories about Sylvester Stallone being Beverly Hills Cop. Um, of course, you know, growing up and being such a fan of Beverly Hills Cop, I had heard that he was supposed to be that. And that was one of those, like, can you believe this almost happened? Can you believe Tom Selleck was almost Indiana Jones? 
it's the orange juice story that that the legend of course is that he they that at the end that he was on it the whole time it was written for him it's a vehicle is rewritten for stallone but that he got into an argument about what brand of orange juice would be in his trailer and then pulled out at the last minute and it's one of those legendary like it's probably total horseshit you know that that's the reason but he used that as the out like the argument to get out which is so insane Again, another sacrifice I made for this episode was watching Cobra because I, you know, talking to Petri and talking to the other folks that were involved with this, hearing that Stallone rewrote Beverly Hills Cop and basically his version ended up being Cobra. Now, I have talked to people who have said, like, oh, yeah, I read an earlier draft because I managed to find a draft of Cobra and it was almost word for word of what was on screen there were some changes as far as where scenes went to so it was more of an edit job but as far as the actual um uh, the character and everything i mean apparently there was kind of an interim step in there where it was more axel cobra cobretti kind of thing (laughs) I cannot fathom that because the movie's so different. I mean, actually, look, I, I gotta be honest. I have a kind of a soft spot for Cobra it, in a, in a cheesy way, especially the opening. I think the opening's hilarious. You know, uh, uh, you know, you're the virus and I'm the cure or whatever. Uh, and the, and all the product placement and the leather. There's so, just something about it, but the, it's so far away from, you know, it's just this total opposite tone of, of the joy you get from, uh, but it maybe explains the racial, the way race is treated. Like maybe that explains because he was just being slotted into the movie rather than, uh, you know, they weren't making the film for, you know, for Eddie. It's maybe it didn't have that they thought to just, yeah, we don't mess with the script. We leave it, you know, like this and let him improv a bit. And, and that might have actually served the film. No, I can totally see your point. Yeah. That, that's a, a really good observation. Cause yeah, they'd never, talk about race in the first Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, like I said, other than the one N-word, it is basically like, it's not look at this black guy who's come to our posh club. It is look at the slob who's come to our posh club. Sometimes you you need to address race to push rights forward, but sometimes you need to not treat it and just realize that everyone's just like everyone else, right? And I think it really works with this. On a rewatch, that was the number one thing I was thinking last night, especially I had just seen uh, that move, the documentary, The 13th, and I followed it up with uh, Jordan Peele's film, Get Out. And they're just both so powerful. And they're both like, just really just get into the racial of what it was uh, from the uh, from the perspective of a black person in America versus you know our perspective and uh, what then I watch this and it's treated totally different but yet also works so there it, there isn't a, a single way to address these kind of ideas and I, I don't know I think it's I think it was a great way to show a friendship between a black guy and two white cops completely organic because they have something in common just like real humans do <laughs> not different humans and I think there's something great about that. Yeah, and it was much more the difference between Detroit and Beverly Hills than it was about black and white. Chris, what did you think of Cobra? I remember enjoying it quite a bit, to be honest with you. It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, I have a real soft spot for shitty Stallone films. Um, I love, love, love Demolition Man and Tango and Cash. I love Uh, Demolition Man as well. Yeah, so I, I mean, I... I'm probably not the best person to ask about this because I'm, I'm already like, I, I love, like, I even like stop or my mom will shoot, which <laughs> even, even Stallone turns out. I just love the idea when Stallone did these, these mindless action films. But then I loved when he, like, like a movie like Cobra is one thing. 
But when he tries to become like, oh, he's going to be a sci-fi action star now with Demolition Man, huh? Okay, America. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all, uh, yeah, I double down on, on Stallone craziness. I actually wish, like, now I want to see him come and do like a, like a hard adult version of Cobra. Not like a porn version, that is to say, but like a Logan type version of, of Cobra, like the same way, you know, like you, like you guys just said, like the same way, uh, he did, he did Rambo and, uh, and Rocky Balboa, that would be great. I'd be, I would be all aboard for that. The more ridiculous Stallone, the better at this point. He's gotten a little self-important in his uh, older years, and I want to see some ridiculous Stallone again. I mean, the great thing about Cobra, and the worst thing about the Cobra is, it's not Stallone, it's not the film. It's, it's that it's representing all the worst things that the '80s are representing in that film, and it's just laying them all out. It's that sleek veneer, you know, and and sunglasses and leather and cop and and look how cool this guy and look how beautiful everything is and you know and even Bridget Nielsen starting that you know in in part two of Beverly Hills Cop that and you know of course he's with her too. So there's just something stylized and kind of grotesque about the whole thing, but also it's super fun to watch. It's <laughs> to compelling. You cannot take yeah. your. You can't tear yourself away from it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's entertaining. I mean, and I remember uh, one of the most mind blowing moments I had watching as a film lover as a kid was. Uh, Tango and Cash had just come out and I saw in the trailers that he was going to be the smart guy and I was like oh my god we're going to have him <laughs> as the smart and Kurt Russell's the dumb guy and then they were both on Oprah and my jaw dropped because Sylvester Stallone was so smart and Kurt Russell was like a total stoner idiot and and hearing them talk together I was like oh my god Sylvester Stallone is this really intellectual well read like it just I couldn't even believe it but it was, it was for real and that's who he really you know was he was a lot of other things but uh, you know I've heard a lot of bully stories and things like that but you know he's he really was uh, you know he directed a bunch of Rocky movies you know it's, it's not the easiest thing to, to pull off these things so I mean you know, it's, it was surprised me watching them on Oprah. That was like my my aha moment. People forget what an amazing screenwriter Stallone is. I mean, he just uh, he did such amazing work and still does amazing work. I mean, we've talked about him on the show many times before. We talked about uh, we did a whole thing on Rambo and First Blood, and yeah, I've got total respect for the guy. I find Cobra to be what you're saying as far as like the excess and those things that we find to be cliches and other films are right here in full force. I mean, the whole idea of like, you know, uh, sending Cobra, you know, he's a one man wrecking crew and the way that, uh, I, I love Andrew Robinson, the way that he's just busting his balls all the time. You know, we don't need this kind of, you know, vigilante justice, da, 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 da. But, <laughs> and then Rene, Rene Santoni is Gonzalez's partner, always there with the quips and everything. Even when he's fucking shot, you know, he's making clips it, it it really does just exemplify what 80s action is and and also that it's you know a, a, a canon production is just perfect you know and it, it doesn't even get better than just the fucking poster with the whole crime is a disease meet the meet cure, the cure. <laughs> with that crazy gun and the way that he's always wearing his sunglasses in this movie and the way that it's like the I, i'm sure it's the way that the glasses are but it always looks like the skyline is right there <laughs> Oh yes, yes. We get that beautiful Venice Beach thing, and and it's always uh, the product placement. I, I don't think I've ever seen a film with product placement like that film has. I mean, he's he's on a giant Pepsi sign when he's hiding behind shooting in the you know in the supermarket that starts just all the way through. 
it's 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 paid for. <laughs> it was already in the in the black when it opened. <laughs> yeah, the only movie that comes close in terms of product placement is uh, Josie and the Pussycats, and that's all in there as a joke. It's not. It's, uh, but in, in Cover, it is the real thing, man, and yeah, it's, it's crazy ridiculous. in your face. Of course, I think of Wayne's World. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little, yellow, different. Uh, and it's always good to see Art LaFleur show up as, as Captain Sears in here. I mean, so many great character actors. You know, before we started recording, I talked about Brian Thompson. I love Brian Thompson. And we talked great. about him in the um, Miracle Mile episode. And he's I know he's only in the movie for about a minute, but his role in Terminator is one I still quote from all the times. Wash day tomorrow. Nothing clean, right? <laughs> Nothing clean, right? Hey, I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six pack. Your clothes. Give them to me now great great guy and it was wonderful to see him and he looks you know it, it's no small coincidence that he would end up playing an alien in the x-files but him with that uh like the panty on his head basically <laughs> he looks so alien but so menacing and the guy is just so jacked up i mean his muscles in this movie have muscles on top of him and it's just amazing and that they're like the uh the the almost like the hatchet gang i was thinking of like drunken master 2 or kung fu hustle you know i was waiting for like the big hatchet fight at the end <laughs> yeah well it's a very much a horror sequence i mean they build it up almost as like a horror movie uh but brian thompson's another one of those great uh you know jacked up guys who turns out in real life total intellectual i think he's like a college professor at times or something and i was listening to uh, an interview on the miracle mile disc and i was just like oh my god like not who you expect from his exterior at all no, no, and I I follow him on Facebook, and he posts uh, some great stuff. You know, he's he's a uh, uh, really fascinating guy to follow on there. So I highly recommend that. Let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Hello, I'm Dan Aykroyd, and welcome to this fine motion picture emporium. It's nice to know you're here tonight, rather than at home shoving cheap little plastic cartridges into cheap imported video systems that keep you and your family hostage in your own home or apartment. Now, let's face it, big screen entertainment is what it's all about. We've enjoyed it for years. Movies are great. There's nothing like a good movie, or even a bad one for that matter. Remember the classics, though, such as Dr. No. <laughs> Zhivago. Now at last, Dr. Detroit. Uh, attention, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Clifford Scriblow never expected to be anything but a humble scholar. Nothing's going to change my life. My life is just set. Until one night, he came upon four ladies in distress. Oh, yeah! And to protect their honor, uphold the law. Step aside, last year you'll be eating my food. And fight for the American way. He became the fancy dressing, flashy dancing, death defying, jacuzzi dipping. Don't forget power walking, systems analysis, rock climbing. Dynamic defender of decency. Dr. Detroit? Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit! Say what? Dr. Detroit! Feel my hair grow. 
Dan Aykroyd is Dr. Detroit. This is the best time I've ever had in my entire life. Do you hear me, world? That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Dr. Detroit, another movie with uh, a Detroit theme here, but it is decidedly not set in the Motor City. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Elric. So, Chris, where can we find you when you're not hanging out in uh, Beverly Hills art galleries? I regularly cover uh, pop culture and entertainment for DenGeek.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Bionic Bigfoot and at Sci-Fi Explosion. Very cool. And Elric Kane of the Rondo Award-nominated Shockwaves program, what are you up to lately? I feel like uh, that's just a jab now, Mike. Um, <laughs> no, I, I saw your comment saying that you finally are not a horror podcast, and I was proud that you're finally not considered that. Now I'm not anything. They need a general movie award show to give you the award, because you're you're my hardest-working podcaster in my, in my movie world. But yeah, no, Shockwaves is going well. I'm kind of, to be honest, I, I, I kind of felt like I'm on autopilot on that show, and inspired by every time i come uh play with you i like going more in depth with more movies you know and and so i just started a show with uh you know another friend of yours uh, brian sauer from rupert pupkin speaks and uh it's much more of a it's called pure cinema podcast and it's kind of us picking five films on different subgenres and just kind of delving into highlighting five films for people almost kind of like we're likening it to like a video store where we both work spent many years of our life working and we're highlighting five films on say films on filmmaking we just discuss them we're not talking about the best movies or our favorites just five films we think people find interesting and uh, having a lot of fun with that well you're coming back on the arabato episode which i am dying to do that's one of the, my, the best films weirdest films i've discovered in years it's a strange one so yeah a little bit uh different take than beverly hills cop not to say <laughs> that there's anything wrong with beverly hills cop this has been nothing but a love fest and i'm so glad for that so this has been a lot of fun talking about beverly hills cop with you guys yeah thanks for having us on it's thanks great. so much all right, well, be sure to uh, go on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find links over to Shockwaves, Dena Geek. You can follow these guys over on Twitter. You can also find a link to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. You can also go over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash projectionbooth, where you can donate to the show. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. What's going on?
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Shit just got real. Shit!